everybody and welcome to an interseason episode from the Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, it's Matt Stockton. My name is Jean Valjean, you prick. <laughs> sorry, sorry. And joining me, also as always, is Jean Valjean. And I'm Javert. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Javert. Uh, there's a little clue straight away, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> One of the least subtle clues I think we've done for our intro. <laughs> uh, and joining this musical duo, completing the trio of beautiful singing voices, it's Tim Matum. Ladies and gentlemen, either you are closing your eyes to a situation you do not wish to acknowledge, or you are not aware of the calibre of disaster indicated by the presence of a pool table in your community. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Now that is a sneaky reference, Tim. I appreciate it. Excellent stuff. Well, listeners, it's that time. I know quite a lot of people have asked us to do this episode before. And in fact, specifically, one of our patrons has asked us to do this episode. So if you would like to go to patreon.com slash sequelizers and perhaps vote on episodes like we did previously for opening scenes, or be able to pick your own episode like one of the executive producers has done for this, you can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers, support us at various tiers to get exclusive merch, discounts on merch, bonus episodes during the seasons, bonus outtakes during the main seasons, and loads of other fantastic benefits and stuff. If you go to the highest of tiers, as I mentioned, you become an executive producer, just like these fine gentlemen have. Mike Salvia. Don't tell me not to live, just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Jonathan Firth Clark. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. Fremd, étranger, stranger. Zenos. Andy Steen. For the people all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. People all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. And the devil will drag you under by the sharp lapel of your checkered coat. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. Josh van der Sluis. I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America. Everything free in America. For a smoke be in America. Michael Belcher. Now you could study Shakespeare and be quite elite. And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat. Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. And the man who has picked this very episode for us to discuss, Josh Miles. They're going to say, and the man who's picked this episode, Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> Pay your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, executive producers, pay your taxes. Uh, oh, they do. 
But yes, if you'd like to join those lovely gentlemen, and including joining Josh Miles, who picked this very episode for us to talk about, you can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers. And we really appreciate your support of everybody who joins us on our Patreon and everyone who's listening in general as well. And if you haven't already guessed from the dulcet tones of the intro, we are in fact discussing musicals. Finally. (laughs) We talked about accents and had us doing a bunch of terrible accents. Now it's time to talk about musicals and have us all do a bunch of stupid, silly singing. You're welcome, listeners. I will not be punishing anyone with my singing. (laughs) It's going to be a long episode. Far too sober. And you're going to be doing the final thing. And it'll be like, Tim, any uh, final remarks? Yes! (laughs) And it just launches into it. Trevor underscore lad. (laughs) We could just rap, Tim. (gasps) Yes. We need need to get... Again, I think you're too sober for this. And I I know you have certain raps in you. We've discussed this. You have you have certain verses locked deep within that are unlocked with the with the oiling of alcohol. I'm not throwing away my Twitter handle. Exactly. But yeah, we're going to specifically talk about some of our interesting picks from throughout the history of cinematic musicals because we're not talking Broadway, not talking the West End. We're talking about movies because we are the sequelizers and we talk about movies. As much as there are certain musicals I would have loved to have picked, they have not gotten a big screen adaptation, so we won't be talking about them on this episode. So bear that in mind before you go, oh, you didn't mention Book of Mormon on the... It's like, it's it's not a movie yet. Then uh, we can't talk about it. But we'll be talking about specific musicals later on in the episode in the second half. And we'll kind of run through, like we do on these interseason episodes, the history, our history, and the kind of different versions and adaptations and types of musicals that we've seen on the big screen. So, yeah. Should we get stuck in, gentlemen? Yes. Good. Thank God you said yes. <laughs> the episode <laughs> so is no, allowed to continue. Like, cool. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, Jack Chambers! There we go. Um, right. Yeah. Um, we're all Javert. Be prepared. All, Listen, it's going to be a lot of that. Yeah, it's going to be very tedious and nauseating. Yeah. We do apologise, but that's Again, the nature you, of it. Matt, um, Matt and I are just going to sing at each other, and Tim's there just Tim will fa- face palming the whole <laughs> thing. The whole time until his fingers bleed, which is something you do in the theatre, not in the cinema. Yeah. Um, if I'm, also, the I'm also dancing yeah. throughout the podcast, but because oh, yeah, it's. Uh, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. You're the dancer of the group, Tim. You're, you've, got, you've got the best moves. You've got the, the moves. I, Matt and I can confirm this, listeners. <laughs> Tim Tim has some fucking moves on the dance floor. True. I can sing. I can play guitar and bass and stuff. And Matt can play I'm bass here. and stuff. And <laughs> Matt can sing-ish. And... Yeah, I, I can't really sing or play bass anymore. I'm <laughs> just Tim, here to hype people up. Tim has, got, Tim has got the moves. That's yeah. the difference. So, uh, cinema musicals. Yeah, I'm going to... I would like to run you through a few things first, gentlemen. Um, preface with a question, shall we say. Do you know a lot about the history of musicals and cinema? And most importantly, how absolutely integrally they are linked together, like absolutely entwined. I wouldn't say I know a lot. I know a bit. I'm sure okay. you will come up with factoids that I was not aware of. But, well, but I think agreed. Yeah, I yeah. think that anyone with a passing knowledge of the kind of the history of cinema will be aware how important musicals mm. have been during certain periods um, yeah. and the way that 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 popularity of them has ebbed and flowed is is a kind of fascinating study in and of itself entirely and i think i just want to run through relatively quickly just some really quick 
important beats, shall we say? Some notes of like these are the some distinct beats. periods. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the overture, perhaps. Yeah. Fine, fine. You you pun happy little bastards. Right. Just before we get, because I know some people are thinking, oh, I hate musicals, or oh, I love musicals, or, or oh, a musical so disorientating. We'll get to all that, don't worry. But I just want to give you an idea of the hand-in-hand history that cinema and musicals have taken, and where cinema went, now nah, we're done with you now, <laughs> uh, in one part of the world. So, obviously, films started with silent movies. Then we transitioned very quickly to the sound era, talkies, and the jazz singer had, like, literally was just a regular silent film with some musical numbers in it, but that was like, you know, the characters performing it doesn't really count as a musical per se but by the time 1929 comes around the, you know, the Broadway melody, the first really big um, musical as it were within a year or two silent films were just crushed at the box office, they're not really a thing anymore because you can't compete with that novelty, it's just too too impressive and weirdly enough, with, with the, uh, the Broadway melody in 1929, they needed to do a reshoot and what you had to do previously, because old crank handle cameras were very loud, you had these huge soundproof boxes to put the camera in, and you'd have all the people performing outside of it. So you'd have effectively another set of glass between you and the performance, and the camera couldn't move. So it was really static until I think it was um, Douglas Shear or something, who was a sound tech, said, uh, Why don't we just use the sound we already have from the previous take and just do something different with the camera? And that's what has become the norm for almost the rest of of cinematic history for nearly you know 90 odd years is that you record the music separately then you record the visuals um it's why the soundtrack is of a specific quality there are some notable exceptions to this recently which we will certainly be talking about later Mm -hmm. on but you're totally right that typically you would get you would nowadays like jumping forward like you said 90 years you get the fully recorded like music tracks from either the composer or the producer or whoever it is they they get the band or the orchestra or whatever it is together and then oftentimes not even the people on screen are the ones singing you will yeah, you will so, you will sometimes get oh it turns out this because a lot of actors can sing because they grow up in theater and doing this kind of stuff on stage and it's always surprising when like a certain actor will be like oh and you'll be like, oh, wow, they can really sing. Holy shit. <laughs> Is there anything they can't do? Yeah. But sometimes you get that example where they're like, oh, this guy's tone deaf, but he's a really good actor, so we're going to have him mm-hmm. do that stuff, and then somebody else is going to do all the singing. Or there's a particular example where like, you want a particular sound or your imitator. We've talked a lot about biographies and biopics in this interseason. For whatever reason, it keeps coming up. But we'll talk about a couple later on in terms of musicals where one of them took an approach where they had the actor sing. And they're, but they are playing a real life person who has recorded music and people know his voice. And another time they used the original recordings, but with the actor kind of miming along and it has two very different styles to it. And yeah, yeah. the fact that we've come this far and we're still, I would say undecided, but still experimenting with that and st- exactly. it's still a thing. Like sound is such an integral part of the mm. cinematic experience now in the 21st century that we're still playing around with. Oh my God, I can't believe they did this. What a weird choice. How That's really interesting. How clever and all that kind of stuff is still happening now with such simple stuff as I chose to record the noise that's happening coming out of their mouths. It, it's a revolution. <laughs> Isn't that the well, obvious choice? Isn't that the easier choice? Like, well, no. Mm, it's no. kind of the, the plot of Singing in the Rain. <laughs> People yeah. are like, like, oh, what's it about? It's like, it's about, you know, a singer and an actor. Well, an actress. Another point. But interestingly, in the 30s, we had this immense sort of early introduction to what would become a long running theme of slumps. So in 1930 alone, there were 100 or over 100 musicals released in that year, that's two a week. That's insane. <laughs> and the following year, 14 musicals. Because 
the Great Depression happened. Mm. And people would like, I can hear fucking songs on the radio for free. Okay. I, I'm not paying to go to the cinema. So they'd have, whenever like a film on, they'd have like, not a musical. So we almost a selling point. <laughs> then the, you know, the Freed United uh, MGM sort of repurposing their own songs in the 30s and 40s, left them a bit stale again. Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of changed it in the theater that the idea that the songs pushed the story forward as well, rather than just being a weird interlude of music, singing and dancing, like a review as it were. Then the 60s, things blew up again very briefly because you had sound and music and stuff which saved fox 20th century fox because they were literally gonna die in terms of like uh hemorrhaging money from cleopatra with elizabeth taylor huge bust good well it's, it's a decent film but it was it was the most expensive thing produced and they were, were going to lose but the sound and music ended up making like so much money for them they were the studio was literally saved and then we get to a very important era the 70s now by the 70s you have a few outliers a few big musicals like Grease and Tommy and Rocky Horror Picture Show. But ultimately... Well, Grease, which we talked about recently in mm, our Grease 2 episode mm, from the previous precisely. season. But other than that, musicals... New Hollywood didn't really want them. New Hollywood was going for like, you know, the, 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 the new blood of Palmer and Lucas and Spielberg and Coppola. They were going for gritty, realistic films and cinema. And it, there were musicals were supplanted by blockbusters and the rise of the music video. So the 80s, you don't really have a lot of really big musicals. You know, like, you know, uh, Little Shop Horror is one, but not the amount you were getting. Then you get to the 90s and really it's just Disney. They are the ones who are sort of taking the the lead with that. Yeah, that's that's the advent. Like it's like the rebirth mm. of the animated Disney film. Right? Yeah, so Disney's, like Disney's research. The late eighties, often credited, The Little Mermaid is the one that kind of all mm -hmm. kicked it all off in eighty nine and formed what we now know as Disney going forward. Like they are the animated film company in the West, pretty yeah. much. And to the point where they bought Pixar, sold Pixar, bought Pixar again, <laughs> and now own fucking everything else. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's an interesting thing that like, like you said, starting off with, it's not a musical, like people burn out on it and stuff mm. so quickly. And then, like you said, if you're thinking like musicals in the 80s and 90s, you often think animated films. And I think a lot of people have like, and we talked about it before, like Disney films is just a different category. Yes. We talked yeah. about Studio Ghibli films recently as well, where like they're almost not anime. They're something else. They're a different category. And a bunch of fucking Disney films are musicals. You don't think of them as musicals, but you, you, but if it wasn't just a bunch of like cartoon animals dancing about, mm -hmm. it, it would be like, yeah, this is clearly a musical. This is the classic setup of now now something dramatic is happening time to break out into song and dance and it's that classic thing of like my favorite musical i don't know fucking lion king i guess because i fucking <laughs> love the lion king it's like um, is that a musical yeah. is that a disney film is that an animated film like it's it's all yeah. of the above i guess i don't know it's it's and such a weird classification in the in the modern era and that's going to transition us perfectly a minute when we talk about what does and doesn't count as a, as a musical well yeah right, that yeah. definition is really important um but just just to tap it all off there are those who are sort of very much in the um, following the industry, shall we say, who are very much of the opinion the musical is dead. And you have examples of like Chicago in 2002 won Best Picture, and you got Dreamgirls in 2006, and Les Mis in 2012, and La La Land in 2016. All of these things trying to desperately trying to resurrect musicals, and they all keep telling you musicals are really good. They're, yeah, Lala won one best picture oh. all of a few minutes. Yeah, um, and one, on, speaking of the Oscars, on stage when uh, Hugh Jackman was hosting, he did a load of songs, chucked his hat in the air, and said, "The musical's back!" And it's like, don't, no, it's not. <laughs> oh, and also I should point out, poor old fucking, Hugh. He's um, he's trying to make it back, isn't he? Bless him. He's trying his best. 
He's a song and dance man at the end of the day. He is, he is. And you can always enjoy your stuff. And there's always room for things like that. I just think not on the the way that they've... Like The Greatest Show, for example. It's it's like, yeah, it's... it's is it show or showman? Great showman. showman. Greatest showman. showman. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Hugh. Um, and <laughs> I don't really care for that film. But the point is that it's no, trying to jumpstart this whole revolution. And I do mean, like, it's not just a simple sense of, oh, there's been a couple of them I can name in the last 10, 20 years. It's like, no, 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 no. We're talking about superhero movies we need like you know that many from that many different studios all the time and actors are being trained to sing and dance specifically rather than you know as, as part of the craft of acting rather than just yeah i can i can hum a tune nope not good enough be a fred astaire or nothing well you get the unfortunate actors who try and start a music career and we're like shut up jeremy renner stop trying to do it <laughs> stop torturing us with your mediocre dad rock oh i imagine dragons Stating. made by 50 year olds makes me want to claw my fucking ears off go yeah, and go and listen go and listen to jeremy renner's song no everybody. don't and don't punish pause it after 15 like that, seconds <laughs> and never listen to it ever again. don't listen to jack he's talking nonsense he's he's drunk um but yes so that's that's the uh the the general general history it's very broad and i haven't even touched bollywood and i'll come back to that later but i'm, um, sh- I'm sure you will man i'm sure you will um but yes yeah, so that, that's that's what's what the general american system let's face it we know today is kind of a uh, birthed from see i think there is obviously the musical is never going to be as big as it was because in those times when it had its peak it kind of represented the best form of spectacle that you could put on the cinema screen. And I think there is still, to this day, like nothing, no art moves me like going to see a musical at a theatre and experiencing Mm. that. And I think that there will always be attempts to translate that onto the cinema. And I think that we're sort of trapped in this cycle now, like you say, of a musical will come along and it will do well. It will be critically acclaimed. It will be very popular and people will be like, musicals are back. And then that won't happen, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and people will go, ah, musicals will will never be back. I think you need I think we need to stop thinking of it as you can resurrect musicals to the like nobody's trying to make cowboy films the West, biggest the thing in the world, yeah, yeah. you know, again, that doesn't mean you can't still make good cowboy films and it doesn't exactly, mean you can't yeah. still, and it it's, also doesn't mean it's that not a binary not, system. It's yeah. not either they're on or they're off. It's like, are they trending at the moment or are they not trending at the moment? Mm. It's like, well, musicals have been, have people have kept making musicals ever since musicals was a thing. Same thing, perfect comparison there, Tim, with the Westerns and cowboy films and stuff. Mm. Like, there are a bunch of modern Westerns and stuff. And whether you're talking about, like, neo-Westerns, like we talking about superhero movies, like Logan, for example, is basically a Western, but it's Wolverine, mm. or literal stuff like the True Grit remake or 310 to Yuma and stuff like that, or fucking Tombstone from the 90s. Like, mm. cowboy films have been around since cowboy films started. They're just not as frequent and not as, like underpinning the entirety yeah. of the industry kind of thing you're totally right yeah they're not they're not the dominant form of culture and you know that's because we found different ways to create spectacle with that, special that's effects podcast, and, ladies and gentlemen you're welcome yes um but i also think that we underestimate the appeal of musicals on film because every time someone puts the effort in to make a good one it does really well. And I think it's part of the fact that, for example, they are a genre that tends to be more popular with women and women are consistently underserved at the cinema. And, you know, there there, there will be a film pretty much every year that does way better than everybody expected. 
and people go, we couldn't have predicted this. It's like, who's it targeted at? Women, uh, 30 and upwards. It's like, oh, yeah, because they. this is the th one of only eight films they have this year that are, you know, thinking about that demographic and this is the best one and therefore it's done really well because it's such an underserved part of society. And I think musicals kind of work like that because, I mean, we saw, we saw how big a success great, uh, The Greatest Showman was and... Yeah, that's it's not it's not that great. The songs are all right, but they don't connect to the story, <laughs> yeah. and it's it's a like, it's a weird thing of like Petey Barnum's great. It's like yeah. he was a terrible, Petey, yes, terrible person. Yeah, why why don't you just you know rub the serial numbers off and make it about a fictional circus? Like that would be so much better. Um, but the fact that that did so much business, and you know, you can look at I think for example, Frozen was the first Disney film in a long while to really... You beat, you beat me to it, Tim. You took the words yeah, right out of my mouth. To really embrace the musical nature of it. I know that things like Tangled had songs in and stuff like that, but Frozen came along and was like, we're going to get some fucking Broadway songwriters to come and make some kick-ass tunes. And, oh, surprise, surprise, it's hugely popular. Um, so I think that there is appetite for musicals, but we need to stop thinking about it as the f every time a good one comes along, we need to stop writing articles that are basically musicals are back. It's like, this was a good musical. Maybe we should invest more in this, you know, genre, but we should also stop putting the pressure on every good one to resurrect something that kind of society has moved on from in, in terms of it being the preeminent form of cinema. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, and I know I'm, this is a strange comparison for me to make, but English football fans, you win two games, like, oh, fuck, it's coming home. We're going to win the World it's Cup. Like, just just calm down. It's You're not winning anything. Just see how it goes. Don't make put these boys under too much pressure. Coming back to the, like, what, underserved audiences, for want of a better phrase, the crossover appeal of a musical is ridiculous as well. Not only does it appeal to, as you said, Tim, a huge, huge group of the female audience that just do not get things like, you know, made for them essentially because it's such a male dominated industry that we have in, in so many pieces of the whole entertainment industry across everything. Pretty much you get frozen where it's like, Oh, your kids want to listen to this on repeat. Oh, they're doing sing along karaoke fucking screenings of it. So you get this, like, I don't know. It's like a primal thing you want to do. It's like, well, obviously I want to sing along, but I can't do that. I I'm not singing along with the fucking cinema. I'm English. I'm not going to, that's, that's a crime against humanity. Oh, I'm sure Americans, I'm sure Americans have done it. I know what you're like on the cinema. You absolute nutters. But we do have specific sing along screenings that I fucking hate. Yeah. They, they, you get the little like karaoke. Yeah. It's uh, Olaf's little head bouncing along the lyrics and stuff. Mm. And, and, you're gonna, and you get all these kids screaming and crawling around on the front. And the mum's going, let it go, let it go. Because that's what mums sound like. I sound like football fans. Uh, <laughs> but I think, yeah, Frozen is such a, like a pop culture phenomenon because of the songs. People, tell me the, your favorite character. Tell me the story, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, yeah, whatever. Tell me your favorite song. Let it go, let it go. Like, everybody knows Let It Go. And there was a point where I hadn't even seen the first Frozen movie, but I knew Let It Go, like, word for word, because I'd fucking heard it everywhere. It was inescapable. And that's, I think that's where we are now. Like you have these animated films that are doing this thing. And as you said, Tim, bringing back my musical, but it's in a totally different form. So it's not bringing back the musical. It's a kid's film. It's an animated film. It's a thing. You don't think of it as a musical, but 
you don't get sing-along fucking versions of blockbusters every day. It's a musical whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, and I think I, I, I am not the kind of person who would go to a sing-along showing, but I also... No, none of us are. No, none of us are. But I also appreciate the fact that they exist because it is a, you know, we are people well, it's who... It's serving a demographic, isn't it? Well, it's, it's serving a demographic, and also we are people who love going to the cinema to see a film. And mm. that is the kind of experience that, you know, it's trying to cross that barrier between theatre and cinema. Obviously, you're not encouraged to sing along at the theatre either. But, uh, <laughs> you know... Can you imagine? Instead of, like, quiet applause and, like, yeah, mm, yeah very, very good, it's like... <laughs> from the bleeding seats like yeah yeah but it's it's trying it's doing something that can only be experienced in a cinema with a large group of people and like i have to you know you've got to respect that as a as a thing that is keeping cinemas alive an experience that you can't have anywhere else you can't replicate that streaming it at home with your kids you know yes you can all sing along but it's not going to be 200 other people you know belting out the tune it's there's all the neighbors around you that hate you rather than everybody's in on it and on the in on the same experience like exactly. you're all bought into the same thing yeah obviously don't don't go to any of those showings at the moment because singing is one of the worst things you can do to transmit covid <laughs> but you know I, uh, I think i've i've told you guys briefly the the thing about wrestling in japan at the moment is that you can go to japanese wrestling shows but no singing because singing yeah. spreads covid it's like I mean, I guess, but like put, you're pushing your luck there. Like that's where you draw the line. There's no chance and no singing. So this is very quiet. Japanese wrestling crowds going as Japanese crowds do or learning to clap in time with what you would usually be a chant. Yes. Like, yeah, duh, 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 is now clap, 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 clap. Like, I mean, I guess that's, yeah, sure, that's where you have to draw the line. But yeah, I agree. Don't go to any sing-along showings in 2021, you absolute maniacs. We know what you're like, listeners. <laughs> we know what you're like. I think there's an interesting point there which we need to come on to. Um, but I'm going to circle back to it after I give you a little bit of a factoid. Ooh. Eight out of ten of the top grossing musicals are Disney films. Because I think you guys have... Obviously, no, not necessarily just for inflation, because, you know, they've been running for a long time and, you know, The Wizard of Oz is a beast mm. of a movie in terms of that sort of stuff. But Disney sort of owns that corner, except for two other films, which is Sing, which is, you know, um, DreamWorks, if I remember correctly. Yeah, um, it is, yeah. Which is basically, you know, another animated thing. And Mamma Mia. Uh, Mamma Mia is one of those. On those. Yeah, 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 yeah. However, that's not technically accurate, because in seventh place, is Bohemian Rhapsody, and I do not count that as a musical. We'll, well come that's back the to thing. That shit in a minute. That's that's yeah. what I touched on earlier. It's like that's a yeah. weird example of like that's a biopic about a musician. Mm. Is that a musical? Not necessarily. Some of them are. We will Some get onto are. that. We will get onto that later. We will. Definitely. Some of them very much are not. Yes. It's just happens to be about a musician, and there is music in it. But I think there's a difference there. And and talking about the definition of musicals. And the difference between, like, I think what a lot of people struggled with with certain musicals is when they swap back to the talking bits. And they're like, oh, yeah, my God, can you believe so-and-so died? And then they go, well, now my friend is dead. And like, why are you sudden? Are you mm -hmm. in the, in the like, in-universe, in do they know they're singing to each other? We talked about this in the Grease 2 thing, where mm -hmm. there's suddenly that musical number in her head and she still wins the talent show. And we're like, did that... 
is she just stood there going like, I love a man on a bike quietly on stage <laughs> to herself. Or is it like, no, this is like cool rider is actually happening in real life with all the production and stuff. And the whole yes. in universe crowd is like, yeah, brilliant. Where does she get all the money for this? It's a fucking high school talent show. That's crazy. <laughs> Where does the like the barrier end? And I know if you take like operas and stuff like that, on the a, a full on thing where it is sang through the entire time, and there is no talking breaks, there is no nothing. It is non stop singing, and then a little break, and then non stop singing again. Whereas, and our, one of my examples later on is a perfect take of like the version I will talk about takes a musical that basically has no talking in it from the stage and added a bunch of acting and drama bullshit into it as well and is kind of mixing it up and stuff. And I think that's where a lot of people lose, like, oh, God, I can't be dealing with singing for the next two hours. Or it's a musical. I want to hear them sing. I don't want to hear them talk for the next 20 minutes. It's like, I think different audiences and different people enjoy it in different ways. I can see it from both sides. But then you get into stuff like Bohemian Rhapsody where it's like, yeah, there are songs in that film, but like and again they're in universe it's the characters about the band queen they're talk they're singing those songs but it's not they're not singing about the things around them they're not singing about their feelings it's not oh freddie he hurts he hurt brian and now roger's upset and crying in the corner you're like that that's <laughs> they're just like hey how about this bass line dum 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 like Oh, he's writing another one, Bites the Dust. Yeah. What's that about? I don't know. I just like this bass line. Thanks, John Deacon. You're the most exciting <laughs> member of Queen. Brilliant. It's like, and there's those moments where you're like, this isn't a musical. This is just a, a film about musicians, which is a totally different thing to me. But as you said, Matt, one of the highest grossing musicals, according to some people. So mm. it's like, where do you draw the line? It's really interesting. Yeah. I think... I mean, for me, there's a very clear divide. I mean, things like, it's like, oh, what about Queen of the Dam? No, not a musical. It's like, but there's a load of performances and they're singing. It's like, but, not a musical. Jonathan Davis is in it. Fuck off. Um, <laughs> it's Corn the musical. Yeah, I think it's... I think it's. I want Corn, exclamation mark, the musical. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very clear divide um, in terms of what is being expressed. And what is, I'm not going to get into to, to, uh, diegesis because I think at the end of the day, I think that's actually quite flawed in a way because it's like, oh, well, obviously, if it exists in the universe, it's not a musical. If it exists in the character's head and they're expressing something from inside, it's, it's, it is a musical. It's like, no, not exactly. But I will say that there is a difference between, obviously, theatres and cinema in that when you go to the theatre, you aren't seeing a very tight, close shot, intimate performance. Of course, you can see that kind of thing. But when a camera's, you know, invasively close and the microphone's close so that you can whisper and be quite, you know, subdued. A theatre whisper is a different thing because you must still try to get to the back of the audience. And that so you can slide in with, with the over the top, like, hello, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. It's, it's already quite performative it's quite heightened and you're there with the shuffling people and 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 everything feels a little different so if someone just slipped into song it doesn't feel that and when you're watching a play if someone starts to like start singing and think oh is there someone just like doop doop doing my washing yeah yeah they obviously doing a thing in the background with the washing up and then they, and then you hear the strings go it's like oh oh no no it's a musical i didn't realize it was a musical okay fair enough or at least elements of musicals i should say but a film is usually striving to try and, uh, how can I phrase this? It's lying to you. The theatre, you are the camera. You see everything and you can't cut away. Therefore, if it changes, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Whereas a film is constantly trying to lie to you and say, 
all this is real. It's happening in one go. Yeah, but you chose where to put the camera. And I know that these, you know, it, the camera isn't spinning back and forth really quickly in this conversation. It's cut in pieces. That's when you start noticing issues and errors and, and continuity shit that doesn't actually matter. So when someone just starts singing for no reason, you're like, fuck is this? What? It doesn't feel real. Because if somebody, again, if you're watching a, a, a biopic about someone coming up with a song and they start going, uh, oh God, a bit, I'm a bit sad and lonely. I better play a song. And then you start writing a song and say, oh, that's their number one fucking hit. Amazing. Well done. We, weirdly enough, we brought this up on the accents thing. You hear Joaquin Phoenix writing Johnny Cash songs as if he were Johnny Cash and Walk the Line. And that's fine. That works. Is Walk, is Walk the Line a musical? No. Um, exactly. But he's yeah. an in-character singing songs about yeah, his feelings. Yeah. So it is diagetic, but like, mm-hmm. ah, where well, is the yeah, boundary? That, that's the problem. It's very hard to define. But at the same time, the music, the singing, everything feels of the period if it's about that individual, as opposed to, you know, again, the greatest showman having a very out of place. They're not all singing like Victorian jaunty tunes and probably some awful racist vaudeville shit. Yeah, I I, I think the the whole oh, these people have started singing, it's thrown me out of the film. I feel like that is in part an excuse used by people who are not meeting the film where it lives. There it is. Because because you you don't go in and watch Avengers Endgame and go, what, so this guy's like, he's really angry and then he turns green and grows really big like that's so weird i can't i can't believe it like you go in you go into a a sci-fi film expecting to see extraordinary things that are beyond the realm of possibility you go into a fantasy film expecting to see magical stuff if you're going to see a musical you should be expecting people to sing and i think most musicals are pretty good at the transition between like you know especially you know you look at your Disney films kind of thing. Very few people, A, people watch those when they're young and they start to learn the language of how that transition happens. And B, they are pretty good at making that switch and doing it smoothly in a way that you expect. And I think there are obviously examples where you start questioning the reality of it. And that that is kind of how you know you've got a really bad musical, is where if you start... Or, Or, as we said at the very beginning of the episode... They're doing that on purpose to fuck with the formula and yes. twist the audience around their little finger kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's either, if that happens, either it's intentional or you're dealing with a really bad musical and you shouldn't be surprised that you are <laughs> are getting shoved out of the reality of the film because it's a bad film. Um, yeah, moments like that that really strike. If you're thinking, like, oh, wonder what that would look like. Basically, you have a big chorus number. And then the whole movie just sort of pauses for a second because in the theatre you'd have yeah for about a few minutes. But the cinema's like, okay, get on with the story. And then you have a moment of pause and then, oh, better go about my day. And the scene carries on. Unless it's, you know, as you say, Disney do it very well, but other people are very clumsy with it. And it just makes you go, this doesn't make any sense anymore. And I, <laughs> I think, but I agree with Tim entirely. That conceit, that that bullshit of like, mm, I don't like when musicals. There's no reason to sing. It's like, there's no reason for there to be music, like an orchestral score either. That's yeah. a thing we tell ourselves because it, it's it's another signifier of what film is. You know, uh, play tends to be quite sparse because there's no music uh, most of the time. At least a film has music. A TV series has music because it, it's another tool in the arsenal to um yeah to to evoke a theme and evoke song. But you don't moan about that shit. 
you're fine with that. Where's this music coming from? Why am I so yeah. freaked out by the scary movie with this? It's like it's telling you what's going on. It's another fucking part of the film, <laughs> dickhead. Yeah. But it's like, oh wait, that music that I'm hearing, someone's singing along to it. No, 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 no. It's like fuck you. Merriam-Webster defines the musical as a film or theatrical production typically of a sentimental or humorous nature that consists of musical numbers and dialogue based on a unifying plot. Bullshit. I don't necessarily agree with that. However, the Oxford English Dictionary defines it as a playoff film in which singing and dancing play an essential part. Musicals developed from light opera in the early 20th century. Oh, there you go. That's much better. I much prefer that mm, one because I think... Sense. Where it plays an essential part is the key for me there. That is what separates a film that has music in it and a musical. And I know, Tim, you have talked about this and your the way you talk, explained musicals and dancing and stuff in films to me it must have been years ago on the show. I think it was even on, on an episode somewhere where you said... They talk about stuff until they need to express their emotions and they have they're like the characters are forced to sing about it. The only way they can express themselves is singing. And if they really want to take it to the next level and they can't even express themselves through singing, they just got to fucking dance. Yeah. And I, I remember you telling me about that years ago. I was like, that is such a great way of thinking about it. It's not necessarily true in every film and every musical but in some cases it is. It's a brilliant like way of looking at things. It is a Bob Fosse quote, actually, oddly enough. Yeah, um, well, yeah I, I was going to well, say... I quoted that, Tim. I, I, I oh, no, completely no, no. stolen it. I, did, I wasn't even aware. I, I was aware of it as a cliche of just being like, yeah, yeah. when the emotion gets too much, you just, you just oh, got to sing. I have the full quote if you'd like it. Um, I if those of you who don't know, Bob Fosse was involved with all that jazz, cabaret, Chicago. He's he's sort of, you know, yeah. he's, he's long dead now. There but, was a um, TV series about uh, yeah. him and his collaboration with... Um, oh, yes. Oh, God, um, I can't remember her name. Verdon. Uh, I can't remember her yes. first name. Gwen Verdon. Uh, Gwen Verdon, that's it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, with uh, Sam Rockwell, amazing mm. dancer. Yeah. So Bob Fosse's quote was, when words can no longer express emotion, the body sings. When song isn't enough, the body dances. And it's like, yeah, that works. And he, Jack is right. Not always. <laughs> no. But the truth is that in our, in our actual real lives, it, it's amazing how much singing and dancing is a normal thing. If you're sitting in the kitchen, you're just frying up something, you tend to like, just bop around some music, or you might just hum to yourself or sing. It's just a normal thing for you to do. But if a character does it in a movie, and it seems in any way organized we're like no 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 i don't think so even though we're like you know how many times have you gone down the stairs gone going down the stairs gonna get some breakfast it's just a normal <laughs> fucking thing oh the, the randy newman and family guy yes thing. Randy <laughs> newman. gonna walk down the stairs and get some food there you go takes a bite has a chew takes another bite has another chew yeah that that you're doing it yourself that's a musical thing and if you're saying like that that would never happen bullshit i will say though that as i've said i think i said this on the show before uh the contradiction that is my wife so she uh will venomously spit that she hates musicals hates them i'm like i i grew up and going to the theater both of us are from london obviously i mean it's like theater's kind of thing you see a lot of if you have the ability to and i liked musicals it's just it's too fucking expensive my brother andrew loves fucking musicals um a lot and I went with both my brother Andrew and Em to see uh, Aladdin at the Prince Edward Theatre. In oh, London. yeah. It was all right. 
it wasn't uh, I didn't think it was as good as I wanted it to be but I very much enjoyed it as a one of those weird transitions of like it's a film that's now on stage as opposed to yeah but the point is M says she hates musicals and yet every musical I have shown her she's like yeah okay fine I enjoyed that one it's like well what don't you I like I like that one but not any of the others but she knows fine I like that one as well she hates Annie she knows that fucking much and there's another one she despises but it's like yeah that's like saying like you know I like horror but I hate these ones that's fine because musicals are broad the problem is that for us in Britain at our particular age we have an association with it's Sunday afternoon what's on TV is anything decent no some piss poor musicals from the 60s oh Calamity Jane fucking wonderful paint my wagon paint my fucking Gonna paint a wagon. Oh, little bollocks. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just I, I only know the Simpsons version. Like <laughs> Jack gonna Jack. Um, yeah. so yeah, I, it's a thing where people will v- really be quite anti. But I don't. I people are very vocal about how much they hate musicals, or very much like. I mean, I know full well, listeners. Um, anyone's gonna tweet at us the second this episode goes up as a teaser, or on the Discord, they'll be like, "Oh, I can't stand musicals," and that's fine because the truth is. Everything we've done thus far, whether it's, you know, the Ghibli thing we did recently, talking about John Carter, any particular movie, there's always a group of individuals who will say, yeah, that's not for me. And that's fine. They'll listen to the show because they want to listen to what we're going to say about it. That's great. And we appreciate that. I thought you were about to say, and there's always a musical of it. Like John <laughs> Carter, the musical, Saw the musical. You know how it is. <laughs> yes, that's, that's painfully true for certain properties. Certainly. <laughs> Japan has like, Death Note and Attack on Titan the musical. I'm like, what? The oh fuck? yeah, yeah. Um, but there's, there's or, you, or you get fucking American Idiot turned into a Broadway production. Yeah, like Green yeah. Day producing their own musical. That's how, that's how punk they are these days, <laughs> creating their own Broadway fucking musicals. But that that is an interesting thing. There's a lot of um, cross pollination and a lot of frustration with that. Films that become musicals on stage musicals on stage that get cinematic productions like any sort of adaptation if you're writing a musical solely for the cinema or solely for the theater they'll do their own thing but if you're doing one or the other you tend to get a lot of preconceived notions of oh well i saw this version and i mm. saw it in 1985 with the original cast and my god it was the best experience this can't possibly live up to it it's like well in one respect no because of course not but in another respect it's gonna look better because you're not sitting somewhere in the circle craning and just peering down and thinking god i hope i can see something um you get the best performance in that regard but sound wise yeah it might be terrible because it's not the people you saw and also as tim mentioned earlier, that immersive experience being in the theater being in a cinema people sing along or just enjoying it is great but there's still a disconnect i think it's it's interesting you, you mentioned you know films being turned into musicals musicals being turned into films there has been the rise in the past hmm let's say 25 30 years of the jukebox sure. musical oh yeah yeah i think i feel like uh we will rock you was maybe the one that really popularized mm. it uh back in the yeah. 90s but i i'm sure there are examples there you go. that's a musical featuring the music from queen yeah there you go uh, fucking Bohemian Rhapsody. i'm sure the the examples actually go back you know way way far into the past but sure i think that is part of what has muddled the definition of what a musical is because people see something like Mamma Mia where they have done their best to actually integrate the songs into the film so that as much as the songs are all pre-written, they all existed before that the musical was even thought of. They are using them to advance the plot or to express the emotions that the characters are feeling at that moment. And then you get a film like, for example, Bohemian Rhapsody or, you know, many other music biopics, all those kind of things. 
And again, you have a film that features a lot of music by a single artist. Oftentimes there's moments where it's integrated into the plot. You know, it's, it's, you know, the characters really, you know, feeling miserable. And so they write this amazing ballad that then goes on to be their biggest hit. And, you know, oftentimes that is a completely fabricated, you know, situation of, you know, how a song came into being. And so I think that's where people's kind of confusion over what is a musical and what isn't. Part of it is due to that because there is that fuzzy territory where it's like, okay, well, Mamma Mia is a musical and that's all just the music of ABBA. So why isn't Bohemian Rhapsody when they're still, you know, they're singing, they're just singing the songs of Queen? It's like, well, yes, yeah. but. Yeah, and Mamma Mia and Across the Universe is about the feeling of the songs and the lyrics, as you say, driving the plot. It's not the Beatles writing the songs. It's not ABBA coming up like, wait, if we spell our names out, let's write a song. Yeah. That kind of thing. <laughs> um, it's it's not a it's not trying to give any form of historical breakdown of the actual origins of the mm. song specifically. It's saying this is the time like across the universe is meant to be in theory. Um, yes, these songs make me feel this way, like Mamma Mia. The whole like ah, mm. why we can work this in because it's set on this island. We can do all this stuff. We can work in the story. Put this in here, make it work. Great. We've got some songs left over. Let's do a fucking sequel. Um, but you've got things like Across the Universe, which is like, not only, ah, I can use all these Beatles songs to tell a story about that, i.e. The, the, the almost exact word for word, this song is about someone called Prudence, we're going to have a character called Prudence. Problem yes. solved. It's, no, it's more than that. It's also like, no, his, we're going to talk about... Eddie Izzard as Mr. Kite. <laughs> yeah, fucking hell. And it's like, we're, we're also going to have the a tracking of the you know life in 60s, and 70s America, effectively, or most of the 60s. It's like, okay, well, okay, it's a bit of a chronicling of the period of time it's from. It's it's a, it's a it's an interesting movie. And that mostly works. And I think that's interesting. But there is a clear difference. But to the uninitiated or the untrained eye, be like, isn't it all the same? No. No, it's fucking not. <laughs> um, I would like to just very quickly touch upon the fact that we have been talking about Hollywood. Mm. And I'm going to make a divergence briefly. Go from Hollywood to Bollywood, Matthew? Uh, briefly. But, well, no, eventually, I should say. Eventually. We're going to oh, stop okay. off everywhere else first. In that, can you think of a lot of musicals from Germany or South Korea or Africa? Cinemas exist. Cinemas are there. But musicals, I mean... I can have... think of musicals set in those countries. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Made by Westerners Again, and English speakers. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying they're not as pushed as prevalently. I mean, English review stuff, it, the British cinema's got a lot of that classic, you know, uh, transition from the end of the pierce. The, the English lovers sing along, that kind of bollocks. Um, but we don't see a lot of them pushed really in more recent years. It's, it's the big American numbers that you associate with epic visuals and huge chorus lines and tons of things. Well, I'd say the exception to the rule there is the Andrew Lloyd Webber type musicals, which have had, a mm. few of which have had cinematic adaptations mm. but again usually by american notably. studios yes oh yes usually that yeah. is because they have become also popular in america um they just Precisely. happen to be english in origin, oh, british origin. That, exactly that's exactly it yes exactly and i mean again there are examples people say oh fuck you i know a polish musical it's like great good for you but not in the same number except india india is infamous for the fact that every single Every single movie is a musical 
And if it isn't, it's classified as an art house film. If you don't have singing and dancing <laughs> in it, it's not. It's an experimental movie, and it will not do well at the box. It's office. it's weird if it doesn't end in fifteen minutes of dancing. Precisely. The 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 usual. I think the usual. Actually, no. I've got a, I've got a quote for you both again. This right. is from uh, from his choreographer uh, Farah Khan. He said. Music and dance play a very important role in Indian cinema. In India, every film is a musical with at least four to six songs. <laughs> at least. I like the specificity there. At yeah. least four to six. It's also why most Indian films are fucking long. They're usually <laughs> about two and a half hours because, again, if you chop out all the songs, it's about, oh, it comes to dinner. So we translate our scenes through songs. If it's a love scene, love song. Celebration, party song. Lots of scenes, lots of stories told through songs. Indian culture has music involved right from the time we are born. In a marriage, there's music. A child is born, there's music. Someone dies, there's music. In India, we don't have any other form of music other than film music. In in Indian cinema, music is given so much importance that the film crew travels to different locations just for shooting a song. And so it's one of those things, the whole industry is stemming on this thing. It's such an important and integral part of the thing. And it's not just like, oh, it's always been that way. Well, if you speak to a lot of like, you know, really big Indian film cinema fans, they'll say, oh, it's always been like that. It's like, no, 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 no. Indian theatre had the same thing. It just transitions over. So the, and so the idea that you wouldn't have music and song and dance to express itself. So we talk about like, you know, the Merriam-Webster definition. Oh, you know, it's mostly comedies and, and romantic things. Like, now, fuck that. I've seen so many things with, you know, hardcore gangster films, uh, effectively like mafia-style movies. And that's going to cut. I sent you guys a, a thing from um, KGF recently, which was uh, I think it's Rocky Bai is the name of the song, and um, it's fucking fantastic. So this guy's been chained up. He's being in, it's set in the in the eighties at this point, and he's being interrogated and beaten, and he's then he breaks out and kills everyone, and he's walking down a pier with a shotgun. And, he gets on his motorbike and drives off. And then you see like a montage of him running through the streets of uh, Mumbai or Bombay at the time. And he, he, he um, would have um, just like, you know, being this enigmatic, cool dude. And then just walking past a load of kids and like smoking a cigarette. And they'd be like, yeah, look at him go. It's like, <laughs> but they're all singing about it. And the thing is, and this, this is the kind of key thing here. India has, I think, around 20 languages and dialects. And you can't, I mean, you have like five or six major dubs for most films, but you can't appeal to everybody. So you know what fucking does unite everybody? A goddamn song. Mm. You don't have to know, you know, what kind of situation it is because there's a song. Also, because there's strict rules in terms of what they can and can't show, no lewd shit, no sex, no, mostly no kissing and stuff. Anything that's intimate, you express that crap through fucking dance. <laughs> I mean, you, your dance can be lewd as hell. You can show all kinds of things. You can do you can do all sorts of stuff, but it has to be because it's a dance and a song, not because someone's literally just grinding on you. And I find that just culturally fascinating because it is such. I mean, you could have a serious movie about. I talked about this on the sports episode. Lagan. We have a serious movie about um, English colonial oppression and how these people have got this, you know, hope and hell's chance of of you know, hopefully being tax-free for three years or paying three times the tax if they win a game of cricket, song and dance time. It's like, this doesn't feel appropriate. It's like, but when you're watching that movie, because they're so skilled at it, it feels oh so appropriate. It feels like, yes, great. And the thing is, with, with the opposite idea of like, oh, I'm going into a musical, I expect to hear some musical. When you're promoting a musical in, or oh, sorry, musical, when you're promoting a film in, um, in India, the songs almost precede the film like a trailer. And what survives online you know, you have like, oh, have a, uh, show me the show me the clip of Mjolnir. Show me the reaction of Mjolnir going to Cap in Avengers Endgame. Oh, that's so cool. Bugger that. Show me the music video. 
and you'll see the you know hundreds of thousands sorry hundreds of, thousands, hundreds of millions of views on various things and you'll see screens on the bottom when you're watching the movie live it'll say text this number to you know have this as a ringtone you can download this at the certain store it literally markets the song to you while you're watching the movie it's such a strange unique thing to see <laughs> but it's again it's again it's hard for me to say they're musicals because it's like by our definition by our categorization yes of course they are by their categorization no it's just a film yeah it, it, it's fascinating it reminds that that the idea of that kind of marketing push for it reminds me a little bit of the period in the kind of mid 80s to early 90s mm. where any big dramatic film like drama sort of romance film would have like a power ballad attached to it uh, yeah would, yeah you know that would become then a massive hit you know i'm thinking stuff like you know take my breath away from top gun and um titanic yeah i mean titanic was kind of the one of the last ones of those it, well, to be fair it was one of the last big heavy hits in um, that case, yeah yeah and uh i mean god the fucking uh prince of thieves and everything i do i do it for you <laughs> yes. you know these things and you know we, we would in no way understand those films as being musicals and yet music was intrinsically linked to them it's yeah it's a fascinating the way that the the relationship between music and film has evolved because mm. it's and i think it speaks to the kind of going back even to the origins of cinema you know you look at the kind of things that cinemas were there replacing in the early days mm -hmm. it was music halls and it was vaudeville shows which would always include music and i think there is an expectation that cinema will involve music in some way whether that is a score whether that is musicals whether that is a soundtrack it's such an essential part of cinema and i think that's why kind of saying like musicals are dead is sort of it, it's it's kind of ridiculous because that they are so integral to how we appreciate and what we understand cinema to be. That's fair. I mean, again, I mentioned that quote earlier, and it's, again, a certain school of thought people think it's sort of an era, but it is quite dismissive. You're entirely right. But also, it's in, if, if somebody says, I've released a movie and, you know, it's a musical, oh, great, okay, I, I can categorize it, put it in a box. We love doing that shit. Mm. That's why genre is nonsense. We'll come back to that another day, maybe. But it's more... It gets more press and would be talked about more if somebody says the big gimmick, the big twist on this movie is there's no score. It's just it's just the you know sound designs there. Obviously everything's there, and all the all the dialogue and things, but no music at all. It's so strange. That's the equivalent to like say for example an Indian movie with no song and dance. So mm. it would be like so odd. It, it would be like that's an experimental move. Yeah. Have you literally seen the YouTube videos that are music videos oh, yes, with the music yes. taken off? And it's <laughs> like, hey, look at Miley Cyrus. It's like. Yeah, uh, like Auronauts doing uh, Star Wars without yeah. the, uh, the the back music. Just yeah, exactly. Just quiet talking and like her mouthing along. It's like, oh yeah, we want a party really quietly, <laughs> and then like, <clears throat> yeah, what, and the, just like shuffling of clothes. Yeah. And stuff. I'm like this is a, an ASMR nightmare for me. I've it's seen just a good making one with my skin grow. Mick Jagger and David Bowie doing dancing in the street, and it's just them going. Tick, Yes, just lots of shuffling ah! noises. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yeah, yeah it's, it's... so dumb. But it it it, it highlights the, the marriage of, you know, audio and visual that is the cinema. Mm. Um, but they do rise and fall in popularity. I think that's the key thing. And it, it keeps trying to get, and as Tim has said repeatedly, 
it's because we put too much pressure on it. We keep thinking, ah, it's done. It's going to do it. It's like, it'll come back in inverted commas, however it wants, because it's never, it did go away properly a couple of times, but it's just a case of saturation of genre or, or type, shall we say. Mm. And the fact is what you're looking for is recreating a sort of glory days that maybe didn't exist and maybe never will again sort of thing. It's like, oh, I can't stand insert name here, you know, revival of property or whatever it is. It's not the same. It's like, well, no, because you're expecting to be like the film in the 60s. How often do films look and sound and feel like they're from the 60s? Unless they're actively really, really trying to replicate that. And even then we say, what a novelty. It's not going to be the standard. And, you know, oh, superhero movies. They're now the biggest thing in the bubble, like much like the Western bubble was and all these other bits and pieces. It doesn't mean it's going to continue in this form. It has to evolve or it will also die. Not because, as, as I said earlier, the, the, a lot of school of thought would be that it's dead because, you know, the audience doesn't want it. It's just, no, it's just too much. As I said, 1930, mm. 100 plus of them in one year. 1931, 14. <laughs> yeah. But over a longer period of time. That's all it comes down to. So obviously we've talked a lot about various different musicals, including, uh, I think we've brought up a few times, Mamma Mia. And of course, Mamma Mia, here we go again. But now I want to talk to you about a different brand of Scandinavian excellence. Today's episode <laughs> is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller or tote. The world is starting to open up again. We're all hopefully the majority of us have a double vaxxed and it's time to start venturing out of the cave, blinking in the sunlight, like the the, the opening chords of a musical. You hear the music swell <laughs> as you venture out into the world. And, you know, you need to make sure that you're taking your essential belongings with you. So you need the right backpack. We are teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB. It's time to move on. Time to get going. So as we often do with these interseason episodes, we have a few picks to discuss. But before we get to the picks, gentlemen, I have a question for you. No. Ooh. If, 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 if you were musically talented, beautifully voiced actors, not that I'm saying you're not, because I've, <laughs> well, I, I mean, have, we, I've, I've shared camera not, with both not, of we're you. We're fine. Yeah, we've already said I, I, I definitely am not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can carry a tune in private, maybe. <laughs> well, imagine you had to do it on stage in front My of God! tens, thousands of people, and then do that in front of a camera for millions of people around the world. Damn. If you could cast yourself, literally take Matthew Stogden, the actor, or Tim Matum, the actor, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and throw yourself into a musical role of your choice, what what would you what would you pick? Shit. Um, fuck. That's a good question. Is it because it is it based on like the songs you'd like to sing or the yeah, role it, or there's the a lot film going you'd on. like to be in? Because bear in yeah. mind, we are talking film musicals. You can't just be like, I'll be on stage for this thing and blah blah blah. Like you have to <laughs> do be on two school. showings a day. Fuck that yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah, Touché. yeah, for, yeah, yeah. For the public, bugger that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tim, anything leaping mind to you? I think I would be. Uh, I would like to go back to the Blues Brothers. Oh, uh, Blues Brother, good not. Shout. <laughs> 
the Blues Brothers 2000. <laughs> oh, you're, you're not the little annoying kid, Blues Brother. No. Harmonica no. Tim. I, I mean, I possibly would be when they if I got cast and people were like, who the fuck is this <laughs> guy? Considering yeah. how, how much younger you are than Belushi yeah. and Aykroyd, yeah, probably. <laughs> well, like, yeah, in 2000, you would have been like, what, 15? Yeah, I would have been the annoying Ooh, almost appropriate. Yeah, almost appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. But no, I would I would go back to the original Blues Brothers. I think I'm probably more of an Elwood than a Jake. Uh, yeah, I, about I can it. see that. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think I would I would like to I would like to take part in that, but just be almost more for the the recording of the film than the actual <laughs> joy of being in the musical. Just to be around some of those like great musicians. Yeah. And you know John Belushi. <laughs> um, to, to put it into perspective the kid who played uh buster blues in blues brothers 2000 is now 36 so mm. yeah it would be exactly yeah. right you, you, yeah. you'd be spot on there mate oh, for being the yeah. annoying kid in blues brother 2000 <laughs> <laughs> yeah i did think i was i was like mm, do i just want to be carrie uh fisher just chasing the blues brothers around and trying to blow them up with uh rocket launchers and machine guns and mm. stuff but no i think i think for a singing role i would i would take on Elwood. Um, my second choice would probably be in the the Tim Burton Sweeney Todd. Ooh, okay. I, I always I really liked Sasha Baron Cohen mm. as Pirelli in that. Um, yeah. And also when I saw that, I kept singing that song for the next like <clears throat> month and a half afterwards, <laughs> just walking around going to shiver the face. Try <laughs> um, Pirelli's miracle elixir. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Tim, sir. I'm a sequelizer. <laughs> but yeah, thinking about that also made me think that um, Sweeney Todd would be a great, great choice for that. Take take a film and uh, turn it into a Muppet production and just keep one human. <gasps> yes. Fuck. Who would be the human? The judge? I would, I would keep Alan Rickman, Rickman as yeah, the judge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what? Kermit's trying to decapitate him and Piggy's trying to put him in pies. Exactly, yeah. It works too well. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. I think Sam, Sam the Eagle would work quite well as an Alan Rickman replacement, though. He would. He, wonder, he, like, he would do. It's yeah. the London way. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up for that. Yeah. Oh, uh, who's gonna? Yeah. Oh, oh, you you still you still have to have Joanna and the fucking sailor whose name I can't remember as oh, humans. Because yeah. always the obnoxious lover interest is uh, is a human. You know, young couple, and you're like, "What the fuck are these two doing?" My Muppet movie. One of yeah. them's a human, one of them's a Muppet, and it gets real weird ooh, real, ooh, real fast. Ooh. Yeah, you have uh, you have the daughter be. Oh, I can't the remember. The only other female Muppet, the one from the band with the the one from the, the Janice. hippie girl, Janice. Janice, that's it. Of course, because she's named after Janice Joplin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The two female Muppets. <laughs> that's so oh, weird. That there's only two. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Matt, yeah. hopefully that's given you time to make your choice. <laughs> um, Sweeney Todd's a really good shout, actually. No, I'm not going to lie, that's a, that's a pretty good one. Um, you two are too London for your own good sometimes. <laughs> clearly. I'll be a fucking Sweeney Todd, mate. No worries. Yeah. Stick would, a bloke in a pie. <laughs> I would I would be, I would want to be Sweeney if that was the case. I would like, no place like London. London. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely picture you brandishing a razor and going, at last, my arm is complete. <laughs> <laughs> would well, you... Put yeah. a pinstripe in your beard? Is that how that would work? <laughs> <laughs> would you have the white stripe? Like, well, technically, off, if we're, going, we're going with you know the time period. I'm pretty sure most people in London were wearing wigs at that point still. So, um, <laughs> and look like fine. you, motherfucker. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Johnny Depp is wearing a wig in that. <laughs> really? I would have had no idea. Yeah. Um, so without that, I'd say um, similar line historical musical. I would, however, go with an 
animated movie. Ooh. Oh. Now, I don't know if this is an animated movie that we make in a live action version that's exactly the same cast. No, I, I didn't um, specify it had to be live action. This is, this is so far, this yeah. is allowed. We, we talked about how Disney films kind of count and stuff, even though people kind of forget that they're musicals, even though they definitely are. Almost always musicals, <laughs> yeah. Um, a bit, a bit of a clue for my pick later here, people. It's the year before that movie. Um, 1997's mm. Don Bluth movie Anastasia. Oh, oh nice. It's it's, it's all I, right. It's not I, that I bad. I watched it good. again the other day because Emma fucking loves that movie. I think it's all yeah, right. I feel it's, like it's, 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 it's terrible history. It's become like increasingly held up as a cult classic by millennials, I think. I think nobody cared oh, yeah, about definitely. it at the time and now people fucking go nuts for it on Twitter and stuff. Yeah, it's the classic. We, you know, we have Disney at home. Anastasia, <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, it's 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 again a shit history lesson. Um, but that's most you know Disney animated films and things in the nineties anyway. Um, Wait, are you are you saying that uh, fucking Hunchback of Notre Dame is not one hundred percent accurate? Esmeralda. Um, no, I think <laughs> it's uh, mostly accurate. Not yeah, so much fucking it. singing. Um, no, I would I would say I'd like to be in that. And specifically, if I had to oust somebody, fair cop to said person I'm ousting, it's actually two people I'm taking the jobs from. I'd like to be Rasputin. I mean, anyone who knows what you look like, man, that kind of makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, played or well, voiced <laughs> by Christopher Lloyd and Jim Cummings. You know, yeah, Jim, Jim Cummings did the singing voice, right? Yeah, because it's it's yeah. Christopher Lloyd doing <laughs> Romanovs, and it's like, oh, he's great. And then Jim Cummings, the voice of fucking Winnie the Pooh, doing the singing and, voice. And Tasmanian Devil, and, and Tasmanian Devil. King Louis, and Tigger, and like Dark one of the most legendary Dark. voice actors of all time. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I'll sing Rasputin, I guess. Why not? I'll do that. Yeah, um, yeah him, him, him specifically, and because I think in the dark of the night. The song that uh, and uh, that the I think it's better than most Disney songs, and I think the villain song is the best song in all Disney films. And when a when a villain song is meh, I'm like, you failed, you a, failed this a, movie. A villain song very much often defines a Disney soundtrack, right? Like mm. when there, like you said, when there's a bad villain song, you forget the whole fucking film. When yeah. there's, a, there's a really really good one, it stands out and it elevates the rest of the songs to be like, oh yeah, that's a great one as well. See, uh, apart from Hunchback and Notre Dame, <laughs> where the villain song is the only one that's any good and nobody remembers yes. any of the other music. Yeah, I literally and- couldn't sing you another song. Hunchback of Notre Dame. Hunch- Back of Notre Dame, marvelous oh. he. Going into a Randy Newman there. Back of Notre Dame, Brilliant jinx. Um, but even in like Aladdin, where the songs are so fucking good, the um, Prince Ali reprise by Jafar is a nice twist. And this is the yeah, great. but not the point. Rasputin, good song. Hank Azarius, Bartok being annoying, but also hello, Master. That's pretty that's funny. A good comes, I'm going to get a sequel. Yeah. Emma and I had that conversation fully enough. Because you know, I, I do the annoying thing, as you guys already know, as we talked about in Accents episode previously. I'm the one sat there picking out all the voice actors, being like, I think that's Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> oh, it's that Kelsey Grammer, bloody hell. That sounds like John Cusack. Oh, that's definitely Hank Azaria. And Emma's like, who the fuck is Hank Azaria? Like, the, the guy from The Simpsons, he's Mo from The Simpsons, but in a bunch of other stuff, but yeah, you'll know him. And like, he's also the one that gets the sequel. She's so like, what? I'm like, yeah. 
It's on the list. <laughs> Don't worry. Bartok's Adventure, if, whatever the if fuck. If I get it's that, it's it's going to be a Rasputin fucking. Film. <laughs> um, or or I'm going to go really historical and make it non-musical, non-animated, just a fucking film about Stalin yeah. and the purges, and it's awful. <laughs> it's Bartok the Magnificent. magnificent? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Matt yeah, just, I'd like to Matt be in just makes season. Death of Stalin, but Don yes! Don Bluth's animating it. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that would be bleak because the, the the animation in fucking um, American Tale is quite grim. So yeah. I imagine you do a good job yeah. of that. Yeah. Huh, Tim, you might be on something there. And then <laughs> right at the end, I sing over the credits <laughs> as Rasputin. Um, yeah. So that's that's my pick. I think that would be who I would uh, like to be. I'd like to sing that song. Mm. <laughs> no, I'd like to be able to sing that song. If I'm honest. That would be cool. Jack, what about yourself? I assume you have an answer for yourself because you pose this question. I certainly do, yeah. And it actually leads into my first pick, so I'll kind of be... Uh, oh, pre-teasing Oh, yes, absolutely. So there's a thing, I don't know why, but ever since I first heard the musical years and years ago, even before the 2012 film, what I'll be discussing in a moment, there's a little hint for you. I've had this particular character in mind for just like, I, one day I would love to play this guy on stage and and he has some of the best songs, there's some of the best moments. I think he is one of the more interesting character arcs in a story that has quite a lot of interesting characters. I would like to play Javert in Les Mis. Ooh, nice. Yeah. And I think cause, because Javert specifically, rather than Valjean or any of the other characters, while they do have some interesting complex ideas and, you know, dealing with, you know, do I fight for my country? Do I fight for myself? Do I fight for my family? All that kind of stuff. Javert's whole journey of I am from the gutter too, as he says <laughs> in the confrontation, like mm. grow, growing up poor and becoming a man of the law and then realizing not every criminal is scum essentially not every criminal is a book can is completely you know irredeemable and stuff he learns that valjean actually is redeemable and has redeemed himself and is living a positive life and helping children and all this kind of stuff and keeping people fed and employed and uplifting the community and all this kind of monsieur le maire is actually jean valjean <laughs> and all this kind of stuff and the conflict that javert goes through in that story i find absolutely fascinating to the point that it drives him to suicide spoiler alert for a 170 year old story or whatever it is uh, from victor hugo um, but yeah i think javert is such an interesting character and we'll, we'll, like i said we'll get on to more about the <laughs> the film specifically in a moment but from the book going through to the musical and his journey and his songs stars is a fantastic solo song i absolutely love stars i think his he the way him and valjean play off each other in the confrontation where the the light motifs of Les Mis, I know we talk about light motifs a lot on this show because that's how film scores work a lot of the time. The way they bounce and play off each other, where they start off singing "Look Down, Look Down, mm -hmm. da, 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 and then it comes back around and they're singing each other's tunes to each other because they're now the good and bad has swapped basically, and who you thought was on the right side is now on the bad side, and then they're like literally fighting back and forth as the music is fighting back and forth as well it's brilliantly done and i love the way the music builds and i love javert the character and i think he's such an interesting complex character that i think a lot of people kind of don't give credit because you pay attention to i dreamed a dream in time <laughs> and all the like impressive vocal performances and stuff i think a lot of people kind of don't give that story its credit as well and i think javert is such a a key Jack, part of that story jack has a basically a tiny little um sound box and every time a scene goes on too long he presses a button and says i dreamed a dream of timing a boy and i'm Shaffer. <laughs> and every single time he whips it out 
So this has gone on too long. My name's Gavrosh and I'm Javert. <laughs> there was a there was an edit. I can't remember what it was. There was uh, like people introducing themselves in superhero movies. Like I'm Batman and I'm Javert. <laughs> I'm Hermione Granger. Like, yeah, I'm Hermione Granger and I'm, I'm Javert. Javert. Yeah, yeah. It was just a, a I think a big like ten minute mashup of Javert interrupting people introducing <laughs> themselves. Basically, <laughs> ridiculous. But yeah, that is uh, that is my pick, and I love Javert from Les Mis. So he's a complicated gonna, character. He is a very complicated character. We're going to talk about that in an even more complicated way because let's talk about the 2012 film Les Misérables. Because oh boy, that's mm. that's a film that exists. That's a film I own on Blu-ray, ladies and gentlemen. Oh God, <laughs> yeah, Matt yeah. Stockton, Christ! I know I did a Matt Stockton like um wanted to punish myself <laughs> i just have to own it um but no for those of you who don't know um it is directed by tom hooper who i would like to talk about at some length but that's maybe for another time when we eventually do our cats episode yes tim you are watching cats with us we will talk about tom hooper it, it is written so it must be done but yeah 2012 it is uh i believe seven hours long i think roughly give or take three and a half hours it. Uh, no it yeah it's it's is two and two hours 40 something like that which is a long fucking musical ladies and gentlemen to be on this be on the screen compare that to anastasia that matt just talked about which is a fucking mm. 90 minute animated <laughs> movie yep barely 90 minutes you're talking another hour on top of that Whew. and uh yeah there's a fantastic video on youtube by uh, one of my favorite like music based music theory kind of uh, youtubers called sideways it's called why the music in lame is 2012 is worse than you thought and it's the way that this film just so fundamentally misunderstands how music and film works and as much as i hold tom hooper accountable it is very very much like uh, it's the whole crew just like didn't really know what they were doing and then just threw it at the musical people like here you go wait wait what 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 do you mean here you go like yeah we've done it I'm like what do you mean you've so for those of you who don't know they recorded all of the vocals live on set as they were acting so each set is deathly quiet as they're literally in the confrontation they're swinging swords and cutting through curtains and <laughs> kicking each other and stuff fucking hugh jackman and russell crowe uh, literally like singing at each other <laughs> like getting out of breath and stuff and then poor Anne Hathaway did like I think she did 15 to 20 takes or something like that yeah. of I Dreamed a Dream a whole song in one go <laughs> and she nailed it on like take two and they were just like yeah but we need to you know we need to get more let's do more and then at the end of the day tom hooper was like yeah we nailed it on take two love i'm so sorry he was like <sighs> so sideways in particular talks about how the fact that she is crying the whole time having like salty water going into your throat and onto your vocal cords completely fucks your singing ability you hear like professional singers and especially like theater singers and opera singers and stuff doing all this like vocal rest stuff and drinking hot honey and lemon between each show and trying to speak as little as possible if they have a big show coming up at the end of the week they will take a couple of days off and do literally no preparation no singing scarf and indoors motherfuckers exactly exactly people who do this for a living and their voice is their living literally they have crafted and honed their performance and their career with their voice you do not want to cry on stage 
You want do you want you want as little as few variables as possible to be involved with your singing. And Tom Hooper was like, "Fuck it, I'm going to make it as hard as possible for literally everyone involved. Fuck you all." I was like, oh, "Okay, Tom. Yeah, that that's one way of doing it. That's a choice." Yeah. So to really put it into and this is the bit that like the crying and stuff. I was like, "Okay, fair enough. I'm not a professional singer. I don't quite understand how that works." However, they had one guy playing a piano in an isolated booth like off set off stage as they're on a deathly quiet set singing at each other literally swinging swords at each other this is for every fucking song by the way this isn't just one in this two and a half hour movie (laughs) this poor guy is sat in a like soundproof booth just plinking away chords on a piano to accompany them singing and he's going from the timing of the singers who are acting so Hugh Jackman is acting and trying to count one two three four i am warning you like trying to keep in time they don't have a metronome or anything and me as a bass player i'm in the fucking rhythm section (laughs) i need a drum i need a metronome are you mental i know that's not necessarily a lot of singers you know can sing a cappella pretty comfortably and stuff but oh by the way we're then going to set the entire fucking orchestra to the timing of a guy who is singing whilst also acting. Like, you mean you mean he's he's got a metronome? Like, no, no, no. Hugh Jackman is just making it up as best as he can mm-hmm. of a terrible While fucking also situation. Doing a sword fight and acting. While also doing a sword fight or running through a church and ripping up his papers and all that kind of stuff <laughs> or whatever. Doing all this like really intense emotional acting because basically every character goes for an incredibly emotional, ridiculous, over the top arc in that film, as they do in the the musical. To be fair, that's not a, that's not yeah. unique of the film. <laughs> and then it's like, yeah, we'll get the we'll get the orchestra to to pick up where you left off. Like, you know, they're all professionally trained musicians who want to be like, yeah, it's it's ninety six BPM, and then it's gonna we're gonna speed up to one hundred and five BPM for the finale. It's like. I don't know, Hugh started off at 96, and then he was kind of 98, and then he, he got knackered for a bit, so he slowed down to 92, and then, f- I don't fucking know, just play along, mate, you'll be fine. Like, it's an entire orchestra, what the fuck are you talking about? And again, that's mental? If, if it's edited as it's shot, because obviously you're cutting multiple takes simultaneously. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, again, there's so many aspects that has disregarded how music is recorded. Fundamentally understand <laughs> how music functions. It's like, oh, God. It, it, oh. It's such an arse backwards way of doing the whole thing. And I feel like there's at the core, there's a there's a good idea there of like, we want to capture the mm, intensity mm. of the performance, but they've got, he, Hooper, I'm going to, I'm going to foist all the blame on Hooper. Um, sure. I, I, apparently the producer Cameron McIntosh has a lot to blame for this which as well. is he, so weird because he's he a was, theater he, he was veteran part, yeah I think it was him and I believe it was McIntosh don't quote me on this I know the sideways video mm. which I mentioned does explain it all one of the producers and Tom Hooper were like brainstorming and Hooper was like yeah cool and he wrote it on the back of a napkin mm. and they're like brilliant problem solved record it live on set revolution yeah. it's such a it's such a producer idea of like here's a great big idea for you someone else work out how to do it and then they never did the step of someone else work out how to do it they just kind of blundered into <laughs> it because i feel, like you say if if you have a metronome going if you pre-record the music and so that the the actor has yeah, that yeah. to listen to and to to keep them steady in the scene you can kind of imagine it would work well but they didn't do that and so they completely fucked it and then they did exactly the same thing for cats like you know, seven years later. Yeah, plus visual effects as yeah, well, because I think by the oh, mo yeah. and, and just to go back a bit to, to like Anne Hathaway's performance, 
there's a recent musical called Dear Evan Hansen, which is getting a film adaptation, mm. possibly coming out this mm. year, maybe next year, you know, COVID, etc. And Ben Platt, who did the, the central performance in that, actually did do a lot of like crying on stage and being like hunched over. He's playing someone with a lot of social anxiety, plays like very oh, hunched yeah, yeah. over yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. And it was held up as this like basically veteran theatre actors going like, how the fuck is he doing this every night? How is he crying and being like snotty on stage and stuff mm. like that and doing it? And like to the extent that they got him back to do the film, even though he's now like 27 and definitely does not look like a high schooler anymore. Um, <laughs> but you can understand because it, because so much of the buzz around that show was like, you've got to see this performance. Like it's so hard to do this. And then they had Anne Hathaway, who is a good singer, but is not like a Broadway trained like that is not her particular like style of acting and stuff like that. And to get her to do it like 15 times in a single day, you're just ruining. Like I don't, it's almost surprised she can still talk um, after having made that film. <laughs> I, I think she did lose her voice at the time. She literally couldn't yeah, say. It, it makes sense in the next like following weeks. It was mad. Yeah. Which, from a director's point of view, is really fucking stupid. If yeah, you, it unless, is. unless yeah. it's like her last day shooting, and you have nothing else for coverage or backups or pickups or whatever kind of shots you're going to be doing, and she's wrapped and done and contractually obliged to take a month off and go on holiday. Fine. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. If you, you're being you a get, Kubricky arsehole, you get a bunch of good takes, and then you go, "Hey, this is your last thing. Really fucking swing for the hills on this one because you're not going to have to yeah, use your voice yeah. again for six weeks." But yeah, to exactly. do it in the middle of film, oh my god, it's so dumb. So, that film is so full of just completely illogical choices. Well, yep. just, just just to to, to circle back again, because I want to really emphasise and mirror what Tim just said there. I I actually really like the idea of recording the the music or the dialogue or the recorded dialogue specifically on set. I think that is a fucking fantastic idea. Really cool idea. It yep. is so disorientating listening to any musical and having for some reason, I've never understood why people miming their own voice and somehow not looking like it's their voice. <laughs> somehow it's like, it's like Bane on a fucking plane. It's like, oh, this is going to take me out of the moment for a second. And the music, the the sudden, the, we mentioned earlier in the episode, the sudden burst of, into song doesn't take me out of the, the, the music. What takes me out of the music is someone going, yeah, well, I guess we'll have to do bit up. And it's like, oh, Jesus Christ. It's this very studio edited voice comes out of nowhere. I'm like, I don't like whatever you're doing here. The, the, the transition isn't very clean. But as Tim said, if you had a metronome, if you had a backing track or a previous recording of that person, you don't have that borrowed time nonsense. I'm not going to get into the idea of music theory. But yeah, the idea that you'd have a guide in an ear. You've got an earpiece in there anyways. Just feed the fucking music into it rather than someone saying, no, let the actor lead it. Fuck that. The actor follows the script. The actor follows the pace of the other actor. If he's just singing themselves, it's going to be um, like well, a David or Russell a bunch film. Of, a bunch of these actors have done singing in films before. As you mentioned, Tim, Anna Hathaway can sing. She's sung in mm. roles before. Hugh Jackman Fucking, is a song yeah. and, is a song and dance man. That's mm. what he Hugh does. Hugh Jackman's doing a revival of the Music Man th at the end of this year. Like he yeah. goes he goes on tour and yeah. shit, right? That's just, that's what he, he does. He fucking yeah. loves that like shit. before Wolverine. His most famous thing was playing Curly in Oklahoma on the stage. Like you know, he is a proper old school musical theater guy. Oh yeah, entirely. Yeah. And that's why the whole Macintosh thing makes complete sense to me. I think it's one of those things where two let's face it. Two idiots were in a room having a conversation and it needed a sensible person to say, 
you know how you're going to do that, right? A director who said, I mean, I always bring up the example of Tom Hooper on John Adams, a show I really, really, really like. Oh, yeah, you've um, talked about it before. I have, yeah. yeah. And how there's a scene where um, Paul Giamatti and Danny Houston are walking uh, on this sort of harbour in Boston. And it's all, you know, amazing, cool. And they're going to put on more CGI effects in later. They're going to rebuild the entire sort of harbour space and just expand it out. Fair enough. And because Hooper wanted the shots to go through and really, you know, explore the area, it pans back and it goes past this netting and saying, oh, look, look at all these people, like, stringing up new rigging of nets and things. And, you know, these are oyster people and, mm. and lobster people and so on and so forth. And you're like, oh, I get it, because it's, it's Boston, it's Maine. Okay, it makes sense. And because he has no understanding, it seems, of CGI, as, as Katz very much attests to, <laughs> this is back in, like, maybe 2002 or whatever it was, because he has no understanding of it, he doesn't seem to understand why you would need to either have that net entirely be CGI or not do that shot because in the background of a shot is, is a huge rigging mast <laughs> ship. Multiples, in fact. And so the CGI people have to go in between every bit of that fucking net and put you it in. You know how a net is like a mesh of things yeah. and the classic thing in CGI is that you yep. don't want anything. If you're going to CGI a thing, you need a clear shot of it and then you can layer stuff on top. Like, yeah. unfortunately, George Lucas did a bit too much <laughs> <laughs> when you go back to the prequels. But yeah, th that is a like a, a graphic artist's worst nightmare, fucking yeah. nightmare is just being like, yeah, cool. And he now needs to not only paint in the background, but paint yeah. in everything individ in individual squares yeah. behind the frame. Frame by net. frame. Frame by frame, yeah. Because oh, uh, Zemeckis was talking about this, um, well, Bob Hoskins actually specifically, when he was working on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, he, the, when he, all the interviews, he was saying like, if I hold a rabbit like this, and he put his fingers apart, the animator has to go in and in between the frames and palm off my fingers. So they told me right from the start, if you're going to hold a rabbit, do it your fingers closed, tight closed, so I don't worry about it. And I was like, oh, and that's an interesting thing to tell him in advance. Yes. So he knows <laughs> to affect his performance accordingly. Um, you know, okay, makes sense. Macintosh, however, Hooper just oblivious to music. That's a thing. They, I tell them to play him some songs and they play the songs. Do you have any idea how music works? No, and and to be and absolutely to his credit, neither does the audience. So most people will go, oh, was the music off time? Most people and to be fair, most people won't notice. Most people won't even fucking care. They'll go, oh wow, Christ. Hugh Jackman's looking a bit rough. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Macintosh is a theatre person. So from his mindset, he's just like, people do it all the time. What's the problem? Yeah. Because he doesn't to, seem to, to make, make the connection. To talk about Hugh Jackman there as well. He dehydrated himself like he does for the Wolverine mm. thing when he gets all super shredded and stuff, which is, in his words, incredibly fucking dangerous. <laughs> yeah, idiot. It is like people die from that. Pe more people die from that in boxing and MMA than they do from actually boxing and fighting in a cage. The dehydration process mm. that is now becoming outlawed in some promotions in some countries for like losing weight to make sure you hit your weight yeah, class yeah. and all that kind of stuff is incredibly dangerous, life-threateningly dangerous. And Hugh Jackman does that when he... If you look at the perfect example... Oh, one look veiny! His, <laughs> yeah. When you look incredibly veiny but also massive... Wolverine in Days of Future Past God, he's is ridiculous in that film. It's the the biggest, most insane. That shirtless scene, he dehydrated himself and they're like, mm, uh, I don't know if we have time for the shirtless scene today. And he was like, well, you have to do it today because I've dehydrated myself for four mm. days. So it's now yeah. or never. If I do it for another one, I die. Yeah, literally. Like, if we do it for another one, you're calling the insurance company and sending me to hospital. So I mean, good fucking luck. On the and, other side of it, no one asked him to do that. <laughs> um, I know. I, think I know. pretty heavily. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, no, yeah, I know. I know. Like, I know. Have you have you, have you seen the transition of Hugh Jackman from like normal looking bloke to like? Oh, oh he's yeah, quite muscular. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Oh, he's very muscular. 
Oh my! Oh oh! Yeah. Is, he, is he about to pop? Oh my god! <laughs> no, that's true. That's he just true. gets that's bigger fair. and bigger and bigger and bigger. And he did the same thing because Valjean is supposed to be skinny but strong, and he even sings about that. Like mm-hmm. there, are, there is strength in me yet. Like mm-hmm. this whole thing of him being like this old man, but he's still strong and stuff. And yeah, combining that dehydration and the crying and everything of them acting on stage, they take one of my favorite musicals and turn it into the biggest fucking two and a half hour mess I think I've ever watched in my entire life. One of these days, I'm going to watch it with Emma and see if she gets annoyed as I do, because I, I don't think she knows the musical, let alone the film. So what? I'd be interested in her going into it completely fresh and seeing Yeah, I must said. admit, I, 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 I still think it's good. But, but... I think it's good partly in spite of everything. I like the production Definitely design. I like the performances. Yeah. I like the in I know people say, oh, Russell Crowe got the thing. It's like, considering this is all done, like, you know, on set, I'm okay with it, to be honest. Well, they barely did. They didn't do any table reads. None of no. them sang together before they sang on set. Oh, God. Like, what, the, what the fuck? Are you you yeah. just, you just make it as hard as possible. See, with all that in mind, actors. I'm like, wow, and, and this film and is a And Russell Crowe comes from like being in pub bands in Australia yeah. for 30 yeah. years. So he fucking sings with his throat. He doesn't sing from the diaphragm mm. like a... And I'm Javert! And that kind of like... And I'm Javert! It's all yeah. in his throat. It's like, uh, Hello! It's like the, yeah, it's all this like... Throaty, no! Throaty, <laughs> yeah, genuinely. No! No! And, and he says itinerary, which just drives me mental. Uh. Um, it's itinerary, there's an extra syllable there. <laughs> but yeah, he sings with his throat. He's a... He's a rock, for want of a phrase, a rock singer, a pub, a pub band singer for years, but like wannabe rock star, pop star guy before he was an actor. Whereas Hugh Jackman knows how to project and sing from the diaphragm. And mm. most like people growing up in rock bands, hello, that's me, don't know how to preserve your voice. You just go out there and fuck the it. Henry Rollins goes, effect. Yes, yeah, stick a mic in front of me and I'll just sing it and... I guess my voice will blow out occasionally and who cares? I've never had a singing lesson in my life, but I've sung a bunch of songs on stage over the years. And the same thing for Russell Crowe. And they were like, cool, yeah. And uh, how many uh, singing coaches did you have, Russ? Oh, like 15. Sorry, what? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, every time we shot in a new different location, we had a different singing teacher. Like, So you're learning different singing techniques from different people on different days when you're singing different songs. And you've never done this before. Yeah, I guess that's what Tom Hooper wanted to do. Like, are you, what the fuck? <laughs> Get what? Have one person, have them attached at the hip, being like, make sure you drink enough water, drink hot honey and lemon, make sure you're drinking tea, no alcohol, all this kind of bullshit. Nah, just whoever we found at the time, fuck it, here you go. You've got 50 minutes of Russell Crowe. He's going on stage in like six minutes. Here you go. <laughs> like, are you mental? Everything, every every possible way they could have prepared and made this easier, made it better, they just got wrong or didn't care or didn't know, and then everybody involved was just like, yeah, I guess they trust their vision because you know it's their vision. Like, I, I, I don't know if you can tell this, and I'm literally pulling at my face with frustration. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I think it speaks to the qu- the quality of the musical, like because Les Mis is one of mm. the all time greats. I think it speaks to yeah. the quality of the songs and the musical and the performances. You know as much as we want to rag on, you know, Russell Crowe and stuff like that, like the actors are... I don't blame Russell yeah. Crowe, like I said, that is not his The actors are all. doing their best in non-ideal circumstances and doing pretty good performances. And I think that is the reason that it turns out pretty all right. Because I can, I, I get, well, Matt's saying, like I can watch the Do You Hear The People Sing scene and sit there and go like, there's some weird fucking choices in how you've made this what the fuck is going on <laughs> but equally the song's so good that i still at the end of it i'm like yeah fuck yeah 
And I think it's just a shame that this has been made because it just makes me think of what an actual competent director and production could do with a with a lame is film. It makes me it makes me regret that we won't get that now for 25 30 years because you know they'll be like you you can't escape the shadow of this it also made nearly half a billion dollars at the box office (laughs) because it made all the monies um i want to go for a quick quote here to kind of wrap up my piece about him is because i know i could talk about this for an entire (laughs) three-hour episode if you let me Uh, a quote from an interview in the new york times that hooper did uh talking about how he approached the recording of the vocals and all that kind of stuff I just felt ultimately it was a more natural way of doing it. You know, when actors do dialogue, they have freedom in time. They have freedom in pacing. They can stop for a moment. They can speed up. I simply wanted to give the actors the normal freedoms that they would have. If they need a bit of emotion or a feeling to form in the eyes before they sing, they can take that time. If they cry, they can cry through a song. When they're doing it to playback, to the millisecond, you have to copy what you do each time. You have no freedom in the moment, and acting is the illusion of being free in the moment says a man who fundamentally doesn't understand how music works. (laughs) They have freedom in time and freedom in pacing when recording songs professionally. Well, you have to remember the arrogance of a director who has been in the system for so long that he can just say, I have a great team around me and I just say, can you make this, please? Can you make this visual effect? Can you make this? Can you make make me 1800s? Paris, can you make me a giant fucking plaster elephant? Because there's, there's one in the middle of uh, of the street. Can you do all these things? And it's like, yeah, because we're really fucking good at our jobs. Good, do that. Um, and it's like you're making it very difficult for us. It's like, yeah. What 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 would you usually use for this sort of stuff? We'll use all manner of tools. Obviously, you can use like styrofoam and wood. And I was just going to ask Russell Crowe to do it. To be honest, <laughs> yeah, he's he's, got, he's, uh, he's got I'm pretty sure some some carpentry history. He can knock one up. It's like, no, 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 no what what? So yeah, in spite of all that, I think it's one of those things that's uh, quite interesting and as a feat of itself. But I do genuinely believe that most of the public don't know and don't care about the nuances. Not that as a defense, because you know me, I'm always banging about the public being fucking idiots. Um, I would also add, in 1998, there was the live action Les Miserables with um, uh, <laughs> Liam, Liam Neeson and, and yeah. Jeffrey Rush and stuff. I think it's it's okay. It's perfectly serviceable. Yeah, Liam Neeson um, singing is fantastic, right, Matt? There's no singing in it. Wait, what? You know this. You know this to be true. Um, I, I would trust Liam Neeson to sing better if they did a proper full production of it and not fucking Tom Hooper's thing. <laughs> like, good lord. He could yeah. be taught to, yeah. possibly, yeah. Yeah. But specifically that Les Rob is a very it's a it's a reasonable take. It's trying to do a bit of a book, but mostly by way of the musical kind of thing. So basically a, a version of the musical without the songs. And that was 1998. Then you got Les Miserables the movie in 2012. Now, I know they're slightly different. But to give Tim a bit of a ray of hope here, it's 14 years between them. Uh, 14 years after 2012 is 2026. So maybe, Tim, in a couple of years, we'll get <laughs> I another mean, we've one. Had, because although it there was did a, really there well... There was a BBC adaptation of the book quite recently as well, wasn't there? Yes, there was. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Again, maybe 12 years flat. I feel like the songs so define the 2012 version and because... It would Anne be Hathaway very difficult won on Oscars Oscar. and shit no, and all that kind of stuff. I know. And yeah. No like, one would want nobody, to approach nobody it. Nobody remembers... No offense to Liam Neeson and, and that production, but like, oh no, God, no, the 98 no. one in the same way that I think the 2012 one will be remembered 
yeah. by by fans or by non-fans. Well, you know? Also, the 90s, was we've discussed in previous episodes, was one of those weird high-period dramas with rings like, you know, new versions of old gothic stories like Bram Stoker's Dracula, also like The Three Musketeers and oh God, Scarlet yeah. Letter. And it's like, oh yeah, give me all these fucking things people would read in school, basically. And only when that comes around, people might say, should we do a big proper Les Miserables, like a big fucking mm-hmm. serious one? With the songs? No. <laughs> it definitely feels like there was a period in the 90s where they were like you know how, you know where the real money is in those videos that uh, teachers buy once and then show to their <laughs> class every year for about 12 years yeah. so the class fucking hate them. yeah yeah well uh let's move on like i said i could talk about lemurs for another three hours but uh tim cheer us up with something a bit more less ranty yes. should we say <laughs> yeah I, I actually like this film <laughs> oh good um so we've mentioned it a few times 2018's bohemian rhapsody not a musical mm. correct not a musical correct uh i don't want to talk about that i haven't i, I haven't actually seen it i've only seen bits of it and gone whoa what the fuck's this um the last 15 minutes is really 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 good and that's uh all that's I'll say about that. literally just a queen gig <laughs> queen were really good live so yeah yep i want to f- i want to talk about a film that is linked however to bohemian rhapsody that a lot of people it came out a year later but i think in in people's minds they almost kind of came out in the same week in certain ways yeah yeah they really really feels like they did Um, and part of the reason for that is that bohemian rhapsody was directed quote unquote by brian singer bad person bad person who who basically fell apart during the, the making of it and had to be replaced and although he's not officially direct, uh, recognised as the director, Dexter Fletcher, who has had the weirdest fucking career, he's an amazingly gone interesting from being a, the- a child actor to an adult actor to a director. Um, I was going to oh, say a child director. A child director. <laughs> you also missed out the host of season three of Games Master. I apologize. Which, I, I which melted my fucking brain because I grew up loving Games Master, the the, yeah. the, oh, TV, okay. the video game TV show, the com- competitive like video game TV show. And I was like, oh, dang, why does that name ring a bell? <laughs> Ain't that. He's kind of, kind of sounds like the actor guy that that's Dexter Fletcher. Come, <laughs> the guy from like Lockstock and stuff. That's really weird, huh? And I never, I never ever put together that Games Master Dexter Fletcher. I, I knew he was the same as Lockstock Dexter Fletcher. I was like, that makes yeah. sense. He's Cockney, whatever. Never put together that he was director Dexter Fletcher. I was like, <laughs> hold on a minute. That's the same day. De- oh my God, it's blown my mind. <laughs> yeah. One of the, one of the most amazing careers. Yeah. De- Dexter Fletcher, or as Jack knows him, not Dominic Diamond. Um, Correct. <laughs> uh, he he stepped in and basically shepherded Bohemian Rhapsody to to the finish. Took care of all the post production and all that kind of stuff. And carried his limp body over the fucking finish line and said, "I've got a film to make. Are you done yes. with this? Can I go on yeah, now?" Essentially, did that and then went off and made Rocket Man, the 2019 mm. Elton John musical. And this is a fucking musical because yeah. it does. You're damn right, it is. It really cleverly integrates elton john's music into the film and in these amazing fantasy sequences it's not just the traditional music biopic where the actor you know it's not a, it's not a walk the line where it's like well how are we going to show johnny cash singing this song let's just like we'll put him in a recording studio and have him sing it and that'll be like and then we'll do a montage of it becoming a hit it's like, or okay, or we'll have him do a live performance. We're Folsom, Folsom Prison, you know, that's that's a great, uh, you know, live performance he did. Okay, we'll just show that. This actually 
embraces elements of like musical theater to say that when you are bursting into song in a musical it is a heightening and a break with reality and you can do stuff like have gigantic musical numbers which musicals used to do all the fucking time but very rarely was music biopic that kind of very what has become a very rigid mini genre with very established rules um embraced the kind of classical musical stuff and this does and it does it excellently i think it's a film that basically it relies on the central performance so much and taron egerton is so great as elton john he is if you look at the like the the soundtrack to it it's basically all him yeah. because you know elton john did a couple of duets but it's it's relying on that central performance well, He's so good that Elton John has brought him on stage to sing with yes. him. Yes. <laughs> and been like, he's better than me now. Let him sing it. And just like, here you go. Here's Tiny Dancer. Here's Rocket Man. Just like, yeah. Passes it off. And they, and he duets in the chorus and then lets Taron sing the rest yeah. of it. That's how much Elton John, who, by the way, was an executive producer on this, was involved. It is based on his autobiography, all that kind of yeah. stuff, as often biopics are. But you're so right, Tim, that it takes it to the next level. Like the perfect example is the famous, incredibly famous photo of the the handstand piano yes. thing. And everybody's oh, yeah. like, How how the fuck did Elton John do that? And obviously it's a it's a split second caught on camera. Yes. He is not holding a handstand and playing piano the whole yeah. time, just going <laughs> plink, 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 whilst his legs are up in the air. It's a like kick out and he does one handstand for a split second and then comes back mm. down. Still spectacular. But in this film, he fucking flies. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. And it catches like the euphoria of live music performance and the the magic, like you said, of, of music being able to transcend and just completely change how you interpret a scene or a moment in your life or whatever it is. And Egerton's performance is so fucking good. And as I said, he sings all of the songs. And the thing that really, really bugged me in Bohemian Rhapsody is that I know it's Rami Malek and I know Freddie Mercury's voice and I know that's not Rami Malek's voice coming out of Rami yeah. Malek's face. Whereas with this one, I, I know Taron Egerton doesn't sound like Elton John. That doesn't matter because I'm, I'm watching a fucking movie and he is nailing it. He, is, he can really fucking sing and that's what matters. He can carry the tunes, he can sing, he brings the charisma to the performance. So I'm like, yeah, I'm in, I believe. I, you get completely like caught up in the the magic of it all and you just forget that he's not elton john for a second yeah we've we've often talked about when it comes to portraying real people whether you capture the spirit or you do a perfect mm. Im imitation and yes, exactly yeah. his is not a perfect imitation especially when it comes to the songs because elton john's got such a famous voice you know you you even if you get pretty close your brain knows these songs well enough that you're going to start going like oh this little bit different how it was but because he captures the spirit and because the, the the film is so good at, like you say, Jack, capturing that mood of live music and and also these different, finding the right place to put these different songs. Like there's jukebox musicals get looked down on a lot and a, to, to a certain degree fairly. They eat up a lot of the money that could be going to other kind of, you know, theatre development and stuff like that. But equally, there is an art to them. And I think this is one of the best ones that I've seen in terms of picking the right song for the right moment. The, there's so many standout sequences in this film. The, the Saturday night's all right for fighting bit at the beginning. That's that's my favourite bit. It's, when yeah, it's, it's, it's Elton John growing up, and it does really... I like the way it brings in some of the influences that he would have been hearing as he was growing up 
in England at that time. So there's a little bit, there's like a little Bangra section and there's stuff like that. And um, the Benny and the Jet sequence where it's kind of his descent into drugs and alcohol and loneliness. And if you'd have told me like, oh yeah, like we're going to take Benny and the Jets and we're going to do like a moody version of it. And I'd almost the sort of, uh, I would have groaned at the kind of like, oh fuck, it's that trailer thing. If we're going to take a song and we're going to do a sad acoustic version of it, it's going to be, but they, they don't do that to Benny and the Jets. They do make it moodier and they make it match the emotion of the scene but it still works really, really well. And and then the finale where it's I'm Still Standing and they do basically a shot-for-shot recreation of that weird-ass oh. music video oh, yeah. for I'm Still <laughs> so Standing, um, which is just so, like, absolutely embrace the, 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 the weirdness of it. And I like, I like that they don't shy away uh, from Elton John's homosexuality, which I'm sure there was pressure to, oh, we want this to be able to, you know play in you know sell to markets to, yeah, to... Yeah. apparently elton john fought for it yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and none and... for the drugs and all that kind of stuff he was saying like how much he wanted it to be not necessarily like an accurate representation because obviously you're not going yeah. to remember honesty, everything though. but yeah to to be a warts and all kind of presentation whereas again not to bring up bohemian rhapsody but it is a bit like oh freddie's a naughty boy isn't he oh yes. silly old silly old freddie that the rest of the band they're all married men they're all completely straight edge clean cut lovely young gentleman freddie though oh bit of a party boy isn't he oh naughty yeah, you're all doing coke and having sex with everything that moves. <laughs> you absolute no. You're rock stars in the seventies. You fucking hypocrites. Whereas yeah. Elton John is like, I did all the drugs. I had all the sex. Uh, you know, this is my story basically. And like, yeah, I can yeah. totally respect that. Yeah, and it kind of centers it around him getting clean. Mm, in the, the, yeah. the kind of the framing narrative where it's that great imagery of him in the kind of the group therapy yeah, session yeah, yeah. in the spectacular like <laughs> the devil, devil costume, costume that he's wearing. Oh, um, so good. And, you know, and it, it does that thing that we've talked about kind of in biopics and stuff like that. If you, tr- you try and turn a person's life into a neat narrative and it kind of finishes on the, the note that he's been sober for 28 years, which is, you know, great. But I think it, it does... Like you say, it does have a little bit of a like of a, a warts and all. It's not afraid to show Elton John being an asshole, which he, you know, was famously famously known was. to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you know, so. uh, uh, that sort of a documentary that came out in the kind of what was it, late nineties, early two thousands, where it was just like, here's his here's what an asshole he is. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day it's still about hey this dude makes some fucking great music and it really captures the relationship between him and uh bernie topin and also the the kind of the rare the surprisingly rare thing in music biopics where it actually talks about the mechanics of how the songwriting process happens where usually it's just like ah inspiration strikes and it's fine i mean it's a little bit of a cleaner version that it's not what is it um love and mercy with uh, <laughs> the brian wilson one where they really get into yeah like, yeah no here's brian wilson making these cello players go insane by getting taken 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 uh, <laughs> doing a fucking tom hooper um but uh it, it, it at least it represents that relationship that they had and and how important it was you know and i think there's it's a very essential relationship to understanding elton john and I think they do a great job. I think we've we've praised like Darren Egerton. I think Jamie Bell is great as Bernie Topin. Bryce Dallas Howard as his mum. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Not not a choice I would have made, but works pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, no, I think it's just a genuinely well done modern musical that isn't afraid to embrace some of the fantastic elements that come along with being a musical. Um, in a in an age where, especially in music biopics, it feels that you get some that feel almost embarrassed that they have to include the music. They just want to be like, ah, oh, can't we just make this a hard hitting film about addiction? It's like, well, you could do, but that's not. That's not Elton John. <laughs> who this person is, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, Rocket Man, and I think it deserves to stand apart from Bohemian Rhapsody, which, not having seen it, but the bits that I have seen, it's not it's not great, and it doesn't, in no way holds a candle to Rocket Man. No, and it would be a film that Freddie Mercury probably wouldn't recognise. I mean, the whole point was that it was Sacha Baron Cohen fixed the movie to start with before Rami Malek oh, came yeah, in course, and said, yeah. mm. we're not doing the film that Freddie would be proud of. He wouldn't do this. We want to go full balls to the wall, uh, the heightened madness, or we're not doing this at all. Um, mm. I'm, I'm going to read you a snippet from my review, if I may, off Rocket Man. Ooh, here Ooh. we go. This is one of my favorite movies of that year, Matthew. Be careful what you're saying. No, no, no. I loved it. I, I, again, I, I just to mirror what you guys were saying earlier, I, I thought Rocket Man was absolutely spectacular. It was, it was such a surprise because I remember seeing the trailer for Rocket Man come out and it was just him in a pool sort of floating for a while. And it's just after Bohemian Rhapsody came out, I was like, I don't fucking care about this. I don't need to. And I remember saying my, my wife said, she said, I don't like Elton John. I said, I like Elton John songs. She said, I don't give a shit. I said, just watch the film with me. I'm sure it'd be fine. And she loved it. And it, it, it made me go and re-listen to Elton John songs. Yeah, or like yeah. Actually pay attention to Elton John for the first time and be like, God, these are bangers. Like, yeah, he's, he's got a hit after, talented, hit after yeah. hit. Yeah. Except he fucked uh, Road to Eldorado. But that's not the point. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I think I said here, let me see. Um... I can't really comment on the events of Elton John's real life, but this kind of film, released with the blessing and involvement of the man himself while he's still alive and unafraid of airing undesirable truths, is an incredibly positive move to transparency. As an artist, he owes the public nothing but offering up something that is wall-to-wall swearing and avarice to highlight what life is like without veering into an overly romanticised fantasy is commendable and something that should be imitated. All we need now is to figure out a way to illustrate the hazards of music and stardom without the copy-and-paste linear structure, although Rocketman comes damn close. And then the final line was, covering the excess of the drama and the songs in a unique way, Rocketman is everything Bohemian Rhapsody wishes it could be. And yeah, I think... Yeah, agreed. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. Yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody cast a huge shadow for the worst fucking reasons because it wasn't that good. But you know, all the hogging, shall we say, at the Oscars and things, and um, uh, obviously Taron Egerton won uh, best actor in leading role at the um, Aftas and the Globes. I want to say it didn't get even like close to a nomination for the Oscars because mm. we already had a Music Boy, and that's going to be this one, the one that made <laughs> nearly. By the way, Bohemian Rhapsody. And uh, and Rocket Man. Rocket Man made two hundred million dollars off of forty million. A respectable a thing. Yeah, it's a lot for of money. For a film yeah. covering drugs and homosexuality and music and being unabashedly bold in how it presented itself. Yeah. And and you know an R rating. Fuck yeah! Well done. Human mm. Rhapsody is a really watered down fucking karaoke fest and made nine hundred million dollars. Oh, Holy shit! I Nearly a so billion much. off of fifty-five million dollars. That oh, is a huge, so much. painful success. Not to mention a oh, bunch of Oscar God. gold. But fuck's sake. Yep. There's no justice. Anyway, that's my pick, Matt. Let's move on to you. Yeah. Uh, nineties movie. Which is a stupid thing to say because both my movies are nineties movies. I'm going to talk about the 1997 animated film Anastasia. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but not too far off. I'm going to be talking about the 1998 DreamWorks film 
the Prince of Egypt. Bloody hell. Yeah. This film... What, what, uh, if, I, if you had given me a million guesses, <laughs> Prince of Egypt on our musicals episode would never have come up in my mind. No. Yet here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I think this film is fucking magnificent. I really, really like it. I saw a uh, critique comparing the two between this and the Ten Commandments with Yul Brenner and uh, Charlton Heston. And it was like, it's, it's a hard pick. Yeah, had to critique it down to which is the better Pharaoh, which is the better Moses, which is the better, you know, musical elements, as it were. And it's, it's, it's hard to gauge. Um, so just to give you a bit of background for those who don't know, it's the story of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's Exodus in, in the Bible and shit. And it's one of the very, very, very first DreamWorks animation from sort of DreamWorks Pictures Productions. DreamWorks is a company that was set up by a handful of individuals, including Steven Spielberg. Now, Katzenberg, who was one of the producers, he used to work at Disney. And when he was at Disney, he didn't want to do fairy tale stuff. He wanted to do big sweeping epics and he kept pushing for Ten Commandments. Like, I want to do this, I want to do this. And Disney kept saying, no, we're not touching that. We're not doing that crap. He said, fine. Leaves Disney. Going with the, uh, you know, DreamWorks animation, him and uh, Geffen and Spielberg are talking about what to do as a project. And Spielberg says, just do the Ten Commandments. He's like, yeah, I will. I should. You're right. And because it's so early in the, in the studio's sort of uh, existence, shall we say, in the sense that I think they found it officially in 1994. It's, it's like, you know, you still have the main players on board. Any early studio involvement is going to have like, you know, the, the, the very, it's like, we want this to succeed because the studio has to succeed. Put my name on it because that will sell tickets, that kind of thing. And there's so much about Prince of Egypt I find fascinating. The art style is amazing, and I'm I'm so frustrated. It's it's only there are only three or four films that did this sort of style. It's almost angular, very different. Wash. I think they sort of talk about the nature of how they went with like colorscape of like Monet for sort of this very evocative feeling, and a bit of CGI coming in all those bits and pieces. It's 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 a fantastically it's a fantastic looking movie. Um, really puts anything, and the choice of like the. In the time in question, when Disney are putting out like, oh, we've now, you know, in the early 90s, we've got starting to get more actors that are familiar rather than the voice actors we're used to. This leans heavily in that and tends to get only recognisable names. So in terms of cast, you've got Val Kilmer, Ray Fiennes, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sandra Bullock, Jeff Goldblum, Danny Glover, Patrick Stewart, Helen Mirren, Steve Martin, Martin Short. That's that's a big fucking Never heard roster. of him. Well, okay. Jack's a... But a whisper of a lad. He's a young boy. He doesn't know these names. <laughs> um, no, that's that's a that's a big. That's a that's a hell of a cast. cast right there. Yeah. Yeah. Now again, Disney done things like you know the Lion King. They brought out a lot of big names as well. But this was you know quite different things to do. And in all amongst all this stuff, I mean, there's some scenes where you've got uh, the parting of the Red Sea and how that is done visually is beautiful. And most importantly, here the music is. Well, the lyrics are written by Stephen Schwartz, who's done a lot of uh, Disney stuff, and the music's by Hans Zimmer, which means basically the songs are fucking awesome. So what you have is really gorgeous artwork, very inventive, very singular, unique look to the whole thing. It is very serious in how it's presented, and it's done in a way that is quite standout, that it's basically, in inverted commas, not Disney. And at the same time, the music is powerful, very evocative and what they've done with it is very interesting so obviously not everybody is singing so val kilmer isn't singing his own stuff he has someone coming in for him that's fine no one expects to you know his what he does with his voice work is still very 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 positive 
And again, I think what it does is is great on all levels. I I have difficulty faulting this movie. Basically, it did very well critically. It did reasonably well commercially for an animated movie. Obviously, it's a problem because it's a religious piece, which means immediately it was banned in Egypt. It was banned in Israel and other places because depictions of prophets, etc. So you couldn't get away with it. But uh, again, as as Tim was mentioning, the idea it has the back of this. You know, we're going to release it with this this hit single going alongside it. So you have Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston singing "When You Believe," which is again played over the end credits of the of the movie. Um, but yeah, I, I I think it's a fantastic piece. I think it's thoroughly underrated now. I think too many people have forgotten about it. I think it still visually holds up amazingly. I think. Yeah, the, the, the singing performances from those who... You know, like, for example, Val Kilmer isn't singing his part. Uh, I think it's... Uh, hmm, Amic Barron possibly sings the voice. But Ray Fiennes is singing the role. And his voice carries off in a very interesting way. So I, I think it's magnificent. But I don't know a lot of people who have actually probably actually seen it. I have seen it. And it's a perfect example of what we talked about earlier, where this is an animated film to me, not a musical. I didn't e- wouldn't even think about it classifying it as uh-huh. a musical. And then you were like, well, the music's amazing in it. And I was like, shit, that's right. It's a musical. It's a really bloody good musical as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's really not something, because it's outside of the the Disney thing, like I said, which feels like a whole other a whole other category by itself, for yeah, want of a better phrase. Yeah. Thinking about a DreamWorks animated, and this isn't, as you hinted at, Matt, it's got a very unique style. This is not the Shrek DreamWorks 3D Somebody CGM. once told me I was Moses. Is that a musical? No. Shrek a musical? Listeners? There is a Shrek musical. There is a Shrek musical. And I don't care. Mm, exactly. But yeah, it's a fantastic, unique, weird experience because it doesn't look like anything else. And mm. for me at the time, like watching it, I would have been, I must have seen it on VHS or DVD. So I'd have probably been like nine or 10 or whatever it was yeah. like. Perfect time. I um, I was kind of aware of some of the biblical stories, like you know, going back to my acting and theatre career. I may or play may or may not have played Isaac and Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat in sure. my middle school. I want to say primary school. Yeah. However old I was, I was the eldest of the children of Israel. I'll have you know? <laughs> and going back to that and thinking like, oh wow, yeah, this is another kind of biblical epic. Mm. translated into a musical but it's so different from joseph and in so much darker and weirder and a more interesting story just for the record sure that is like yeah yeah a really interesting choice matt that i wouldn't think of and then as soon as you wrote it down on our show notes i was like oh yeah of course what a, mm. what a cool choice what an interesting choice well it's it's, it's a thing as well because i again we're talking about like the nature of like the opposite of lame is as it were it, as in Tom Hooper's lame is. There's so much that's interesting behind the scenes because when they were writing it, they had the art designers and all those people, and including like Schwartz. By the way, if I, I talk about like Stephen Schwartz, Stephen Schwartz uh, worked with Disney on Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame and other bits and pieces. He was also he's he's the guy who did the musical Wicked. That's he's yes. the music. So he's a huge huge industry. And obviously Hans Zimmer's Hans fucking Zimmer, but they flew them all out to Egypt. And they're like, right, before you write a single thing, music-wise, I need you to be in the presence of the buildings that these people were creating. In the sun, in the heat, I want you to feel what it might have been like to think, right, here's some rope, 
build this shit and I will whip you until you do it. <laughs> and you hear the song. I think it's why they wrote the song um, Deliver Us quite early on. They played that for the uh, the customer and it just it sets the tone immediately. With that. And um, yeah, I think there's some, some re- I think it's um, Ofra Haza or Haza, I think it is. She's uh, uh, an Israeli singer. She died actually. Now I think about it, she died quite young, like in the early two thousands, and like um, in her forties. But she sings like the sort of open deliver us kind of thing, and 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 she's she's the voice basically of of, of Moses's mother. But it's so transportive. It's such an amazing, beautiful harmony, effectively. And again, thinking about like all I ever wanted is just such a great track. I I there are so few. The plagues is fucking dark and brilliant. Playing with the big boys is the sort of comedy uh, so so yes uh, steve martin and martin short play these two court advisors i guess so high priests yeah. is what i would say they're high, high priests, priests yeah, yeah. yeah hotep and hoy and they obviously doing their you know trying to 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 uh upstage moses and his invocals miracles and stuff and like oh well we could do that shit etc but the song is cool and <laughs> I don't, I, again, I don't think there's a single song in this movie that I don't go, yeah, this how, is fucking How good. often do you say that about musicals? This yeah. This is cool. And, well, well that's the thing. It's I'm a sorry. biblical musical. It's cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm cool. No, no, no. I, I think, I think if you, if you watch the opening sequence of Deliver Us, it's kind of like the opening in a weird way of like The Lion King with that um, just very, very powerful tone and theme and place setting intro. Talk about obviously opening scene stuff. The idea that it, it, it immediately transports you, and you're there. That's what this is. It's huge, and it's like Africa is amazing. These animals look majestic. This is amazing. But if you do the exact same thing in the northern part of Africa, in Egypt, and you show the cruelty of man and this entire basically race of people, the Jewish people and things who are slaves, and it's like, yeah, this is an awful, awful existence, and they're basically praying. Like, please just make this stop. And it's like, this is crushing and yet really beautiful to watch. Um, so yeah, I think it's a fantastic film. I think it needs to be seen by more people. I think it might be on, like, sometimes it's on streaming services. The real frustration for me is that this particular art style they had, they did it on uh, Joseph, King of Dreams, which is fine. Sinbad, mm. which is not good. And um, is it Road to El Dorado or just El Dorado? I can't remember which one it is. But the point is... El Dorado. El Dorado, yeah. I, I like that film. The problem is that Elton John does the music for it, and the music's shit. And I'm like, God damn it. This uh, one- Prince of Egypt here in the UK is available on Sky, Now TV, and something else I don't remember. Yeah, Virgin as time well. recording, yeah. 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 Oh, so, and Spirit. Uh, is there Spirit? The, the point is... Oh, God, this Spirit. Is the, this is the hell. thing whereby it was like, we're pushing this new studio we've got and they were pushing this as a bit of a flagship kind of traditionally animated thing. And so you had the heavy hand of them making this. And then, of course, once 2000 came around with Shrek, it's like, we don't need that crap anymore. We've got our, we've got Madagascar films, we've got Shrek movies. They go on to do other stuff, obviously, Kung Fu Panda. They do amazing stuff still, but it's like, I kind of miss this. I want another one of these. But mm. yeah, I think it's great. And uh, have you, so you guys, have you, have either of you seen it? Have you both seen it? Yep, I've seen it. I enjoy it. Like I said, I think it's interesting and different. And yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it as a kid. I probably haven't watched it in like 15 to 20 it's years. I remember enjoying it back then. I'm, I'd probably think it was still good now. Mm. I, don't, I don't remember that much specifically, if I'm honest. But it's yeah, fair. I remember All enjoying right. it when I was a kid. I mean, it's Ten Commandments. It's like once you know like the rough idea of it. <laughs> What about you, Tim? 
I, I haven't seen it. I um I remember it coming out, and I think it was, <laughs> I think it was around the period where. I had just stopped going to church with my parents, <laughs> and so I was Ooh. I was not I was not in fuck that noise in the frame yeah. of mind. Not that I was a uh, you know angry young atheist type guy, but um, yeah, I think I was just like I'm fine. I, I should, don't I, I don't need point to out, see it. I as a kid, I know my brother Jonathan really liked the movie, and I was like, it's fine. As, at that at younger age, so I was like, I'm, mm. I'm Catholic. I've got enough of this shit. I don't need like another one. Like you know, in my mid- it's only when I got to my mid twenties where I was like, I'll watch it again. And as a filmmaker, I thought, I really appreciate what they're doing here. Um, but again, this is why I said about the box office and stuff, because it is a loaded film because of the religious aspect mm. and stuff. So, so yeah, I understand that entirely. Yeah, no, I think I would definitely enjoy it if I went back and watched it now. Um, I mm. remember th- enjoying the art style from what I saw of bits and pieces. And and like you say, the art that was used on on stuff like Sinbad uh, then and yeah. uh, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, no, I haven't seen it. I know it's been it's been turned into a stage musical now. It, yes, it has recently. Has hasn't it? it really? Bloody hell! Yeah, it, mm. I think it's playing in London like as we speak for so, uh, people who should be masked up. <laughs> so clearly, clearly the uh, the songs are I, good enough yeah, to, uh, to stand up for for translation to the West End. Mm. That's a weird thing. We yeah, something we haven't really touched upon is the whole things being adapted from film to stage and that other way as well, like. I mentioned The Lion King earlier on. It's like, yeah, The Lion King film was the musical. It's like, mm. right, but there's Lion King the musical as well, which is a different thing. So it's like, yeah, that's interesting. I'd be very interested to see how an animated film like Prince of Egypt translates into a stage production and how they've mm. changed that and adapted that. Because like you said, Matt, I think the visual style of that, because mm. it's DreamWorks and not Disney, and before the Shrek era of DreamWorks where everything's yeah. 3D CGI kind of style, I'd be very interested to see how that translates to a on-stage musical kind of thing. Mm. I, I went to see the Lion King musical probably a couple of years ago now uh, with my sister, who is a little bit older than me and had never seen the Lion King film. God damn it. I mean, again, I know it's not a thing I should do, but still, fucking hell. Let, let me revise that. Uh-oh. She had seen the modern CGI Lion King. She had not seen the original animated Lion That's King. That's worse, Tim. That's worse. I know. That's so much worse. I know. She was like, "Why is all the singing so good?" And you're like, "Because, <laughs> it's not Seth Rogen." Bless it, bless him. I do love, I do love Seth Rogen, as a guy who kind of looks like Seth Rogen. I have an appreciation yeah. for him. But woof, woof. If, if you're doing a musical, he's no Nathan Lane. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's back round to you, Jack. Uh, do is. you have another? Uh, Tom Hooper that you're going to pull out it's like turns out it is cats fuck you uh my second choice my second and final choice is in fact cats no it's not cats i promise it's not cats it is a film i saw i want to say was it this year or last year for the first time i can't oh, remember there's yeah. a lot of uh, anticipation Patient. going on here <laughs> because we're in fact talking about 1975's the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And it is one of those things, and I specifically want to talk about this because I saw it so recently. Mm. I'm pretty sure it was early this year. It was during one of the lockdowns, if I remember correctly. And Emma has got it on Blu-ray. We've got a cell of the film framed in our living room and a uh, Frankenverter uh, pop Funko thing and a bunch of other stuff. And I had never seen it. I I know. Let's do the time warp again, and other bits and pieces, and like the anticipation. 
participation line mm. and Richard O'Brien looking creepy because he's Richard O'Brien. And, <laughs> and then that was it. I didn't know any other songs. I didn't know the plot. I didn't know any of that shit. And I went in about as blind as you can do in 2021 to a film that's been around for 40 fucking years. I so what is it actually about? Like, so, so which one's Rocky? That's the main character, right? Like, no, no, no. <laughs> That's the naked blonde dude. I'm like, wait, what? Why is it called the Rocky Horror Picture Show? What the fuck is this? And yeah, seeing Susan Sarandon. I didn't even know Susan Sarandon was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I had no idea. I knew it's Tim Curry, Richard O'Brien, insert other people. And then fucking Meatloaf shows up. <laughs> And, spoiler alert, gets murdered in like 90 seconds after singing a song and being a cool biker dude. I was like, oh, brilliant, Meatloaf's... Oh, Meatloaf's gone. Okay, brilliant. (laughs) That's that's the end of Meatloaf. But it's such a, like, pop culture phenomenon with the look that Tim Curry rocks in this film with the suspenders and the corsets and everything. The makeup, the hair, it's so iconic and so transcends itself out of this musical that I was like, what? I, I have no idea what this is about from seeing like two completely separate looking characters. I'm still not entirely sure what it's about even after watching it. And then, spoiler alert for a 46-year-old film, he's an alien <laughs> <laughs> and, is, and is attacked and like recaptured by other aliens of his species basically and it's all this weird fucking when he says he's a sweet transvestite from transsexual transylvania he's from the planet transsexual in the galaxy of transylvania and i'm like what the actual fuck is going on (laughs) but every time the music would kick in i'd be like oh i do know a bit of this or even if i didn't by the chorus i'm like getting into it and singing along and stuff. And thankfully, I was in my own home. I'd like to clarify. Like I said, <laughs> I didn't go and see this in the cinema. I'm not one of those dickheads. But I have now promised to Emma that we will go and see either a theatre production of it or whatever it is, or one of those ones where people get dressed up and do the thing. Fucking hell. Yeah, I know, yeah. That, by you know, way, what have I signed up? That's worse than signing up for marriage or more commitment that. than marriage or buying a house with Emma. This is the real commitment, yeah. I'm afraid of. That's not that's not me in any way uh, saying, oh no, there'll be, you know, types there. It's like, no, 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 no. It's the oh, idea God, it's of Jack everyone just suspenders. singing along. That's all no. that makes me uncomfortable. It's like, no, no. You no, don't. No. You just don't want to see me in a corset. That's, that's the problem. I mean, I'm attending your wedding. I assume you'll be wearing a corset. <laughs> but yeah, like Shatner. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, coming into it 46 years later, I was surprised how entertained I was, and how surprised I was, mm. and how not groundbreaking. It's not particularly groundbreaking in in, in that many ways, but how interesting and captivated i was watching it in a similar sense to cats but in a positive way there was a lot of the fuck is this the fuck is going on who is he why is that there and it's not necessarily all explained but they build this fascinating world you have the surrogate audience members in brad and janet coming in i thought oh they're the main characters and then they're kind of not but they kind of are and then also rocky is barely there but also one of the main characters and it's this weird exploration of music and humanity and sexuality in a way that i genuinely hadn't really thought about like oh i didn't realize this was such a kind of boundary pushing weird bizarre film i thought oh it's some 
Tim Curry's the weird one and then everyone else is normal and then he'll be like, look at me, I'm the quirky character and all this kind of stuff. It's like, I don't know, he lives in a house with a bunch of like weird cult people and he he is an alien and it's like, okay. And then Meatloaf shows up and dies and explodes through a wall through a motorbike and you're like, wait, what? And he, to say Tim Curry is magnificent is an understatement. Oh, yeah. His performance and how incredible he looks cannot be overstated he never has has a man looked better than than tim curry in this movie it is it is spectacular and i'm sure loads of listeners are like fucking whatever jack everybody's seen rocky horror picture so come on because it's such an iconic film hadn't and now i have and i feel my life has changed afterwards i have a, i have a pre-rocky horror life and i now have a, i'm now living <laughs> in post rocky horror picture show mm. And uh, yeah, it, it it didn't live up to my expectations because I didn't particularly have any and didn't know what was going on. But I enjoyed it. I had a great time. And I found myself accidentally humming some of the songs like six months later. To clarify, <laughs> and, you watched it with Emma, correct? Oh, cor- oh absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, you no, watched I'm... it with an avid fan? Yes. Right. That's but different. She, she didn't She didn't talk and she didn't sing. Oh, no, no, no. no that, that, I just mean for the record. You were with someone who was passionate out, about I'd it. Kick yes. her out the fucking flag. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's like I said, gonna... she's, got the, she's got the Blu ray. I think I bought her the yes. Blu ray yes. and the Pop Funko. And like I said, we have a cell yeah. Yeah, framed in the living room. So, yeah. 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 The reason I was bringing up was going to segue to if it's quite all right with everybody. My very different experience Ooh. with Rocky Horror. Uh oh. Um, you were forced into a corset. <laughs> <laughs> no, basically, I at the age of sixteen, Uh-oh. knew this film was important because everyone of a certain age was banging on about it, and it came out on DVD for the first time in the year two thousand, and I bought it because I was like, ah, I'm a film person. I'll watch this thing that everyone's talking about. I've never Uh-oh. seen it before because it's not really things on TV much. It's you know, it's in um, matinees or late night movie theaters kind of thing and special screenings. But I can own a copy, so I got the twenty fifth anniversary DVD, as it were, and it's like this is great, and all these behind the scenes interviews and documentaries I was learning about the film entirely and I watched and absorbed all of it and I still have that DVD which is kind of creepy that you know the time since when the film was made mm-hmm. and me buying the DVD is almost the same amount of time as passed either side but <laughs> the point is that I was watching this at 16 and I didn't like it now this isn't me saying well what a sexually repressed boy you were it's like no 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 I just didn't like it I thought the songs were fine I thought it was all over the fucking shop. I liked the performances. I thought that was great. I thought everyone involved was doing a really good job. I, I got the sort of riffing on the whole, oh, it's kind of like a B-movie thing with the whole damn it, Janet kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, I get that. I get what you're doing. I just don't enjoy it. And sure enough, I thought, well, that must be me being a teenager. I'll put it on the shelf and I'll have an opinion now, which is fine. And I went back and watched it um, mid-2010s again. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm being ridiculous. I still don't like it. I don't know fair, what it is, and not, I mean, no one has to make me. And that's the thing we talk about always. Like, I can appreciate what it's, it's it's worth over my enjoyment of it, but I think my problem isn't necessarily directly with the movie itself. It's to do with a lot of Gen Xers and boomers talking about how it's like the best fucking thing ever because it's sexually awoken mm. them. Like, oh, yeah. it was such a unique and beautiful. It was so moving for me. It's like I don't give a shit, and I'm like. I'm, you know, I'm a 90s kid growing up in the 2000s. I've got all kinds. I've been watching Urotsuki Doji, Legend of the Overfiend, because everyone <laughs> thinks it's a cartoon for kids. My sexual life is awakened, motherfucker. I'm good. Um, but again, I know it was challenging. I know it was bold. I know it was important. I do appreciate those things. I know it still shows to this day in certain cinemas. 
uh, and has a very very cult. Does, that's how much of a cult film it is. Yeah, yeah. but I yeah I, I I like the references. I like the memeable quality of it all. And God damn, you're right. Tim Curry is glorious in it. I don't like how the story ends. I think it's stupid. Um, it's so, B movie schlocky bullshit. Yeah, that's no, what it's I know, all about. I know. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm and people again similarly. Jack people might be saying, "What the fuck is wrong with Matt? He's always banging on about all these movies." Yeah, I'm sure. So how can he not appreciate this? This film also has very avid like, fans. Yeah, so. an iconic, iconic bit of cinema. How can he not appreciate it? It's like I do appreciate what it did. Doesn't mean I have to fucking like it. What are you, Tim? I I am gonna brave the ire of Emma as well because I am in almost exactly the same boat as you, Matt. Boom! I was aware of it. You're, as... you're safer if I just don't tell her. It's fine. Yeah. She listens was, to every episode, was... though. <laughs> yes. Yes, she does. Yes, of course. Uh, I was aware of it as a cult thing mm. and something that, you know, a lot of people were very passionate about and that the following it had. I think I saw it when I was about 22, 23. And yeah, I just kind of bounced off it. I'd, like you say, I appreciate all the things it, it does. And I think. Like you say, Tim Curry is absolutely amazing in it. I think mm. most of the performances are pretty good, but I uh, it just it's a cult film for a reason. Yeah. And you know, there there's gonna be people for whom it's the world, but those are only gonna be maybe, you know, five percent of the population. And it means that ninety five percent of the people are gonna go, Yeah, it's not for me. Um And classically there's and, fewer and, like and fewer you, of like, those in there. Yeah, it's not it's not because you know I'm scandalized by the content of it. I think that, you know that's that's all fine, but it just I think that to a certain degree it's kind of aged now. Oh yeah, yeah. it feels it, the things that are scandalous in it feel sort of tame. When you've got like you can have a Rocky Horror Picture Show production in a high school, it's mm. it's it's less challenging, and that's kind of good. That shows progress. That shows things are normalized which is great and that's what the, like the lgbt mm. representation is good that is positive especially in 1975 that's exactly yeah. it yeah the counterculture style thing where they get they're very much trying to as a new wave of hollywood all these all these bits and pieces that are in there and this is this indie cult hit that comes out of nowhere and it challenges people and it's like you know spoke about in hushed tones but it's so brazen in what it's doing i love that stuff but watching it from a contemporary lens, it's a bit tricky. And also from my point of view, it was so hyped and I'm, I try to get into it and I think fragments I like, but meh. Fair. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, but it's fine. As, but again, I say, Tim and I, I assume watched it on our own, respectively. I watched it literally in my bedroom on my own. And again, Jack, you watched it with a fan, not necessarily going like, oh, you'll love this, but it was more just like you feed off that energy. Cause I think, yeah, yeah. So you, you mean, definitely. you get some of that passion. Similarly, like watching cats with a group is probably quite fun because you can take the piss out of it. Watching cats on your own is just like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? <laughs> Agreed. I'm glad I saw cats with you because it would have been a, a more painful experience if I hadn't. That's for sure. You're welcome. You're going you're gonna to love it, Tim. It's going to be fine. Speaking of you, Tim, background to you, Mr. Maiden. What's your second pick? So I, I think I had the most recent film with a, with a 2019. You certainly do, yeah. I've also got the oldest because I am going back to 1954. Some might say Jesus. one of the the golden ages of the of the Hollywood musical. It is, yeah. Well, uh, for seven brides, for seven brothers. Mm. Now, I've I've spoken in the past about how my family doesn't really kind of watch films that much, mm. or they certainly 
they don't have a great passion for films. They don't. I think if you ask my parents, like what? Oh, what's your what's your top five favorite films? They'd struggle to get to five. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, even though they've seen plenty of films, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was a was a film that my dad really liked, and it's strange because it's kind of not at all what would normally be his thing. He's he's a very uh, he's the kind of person who would normally in a musical be going why are they singing now <laughs> um and yet for him this this film worked and so i watched it a fair bit growing up like on vhs off of off of tv and boy is it a problematic fave <laughs> okay it's 1954 tim it, i mean it's come on. based on an ancient well, even, roman even legend then. called the rape of the sabine women but admittedly yes. rape means kidnapping but even then not good yeah so for people who aren't familiar with it it is the story of a sort of a backwards guy uh, in in Oregon in sort of 1850, yeah. before it was even a state, who wow. goes into town, uh, comes across a woman who works at a local tavern, and is like, I like the look of her, I'm going to make her my wife, and proposes... Classic man uh, stuff. Yeah, and she says yes, and so he takes her off home, uh, and she, she previously worked at this kind of like tavern... Uh, and as they're riding back up to his his shack in the mountain, she's like, "Oh, thank God, I won't have to look after uh, a bunch of like men anymore. I'll just have my one husband that I'll have to to do for." And he's like, "Oh, oh dear, forgot to say, I've got six brothers, uh, and they're all single, <laughs> yeah, and they all live with me, and we have this farm, sort of ranch farm type thing that we take care of, and we're all these fucking." Daniel Boone motherfuckers. Yes. Imagine in... Snow White, rather than just wandering in the woods and found this hut, imagine Doc went out and married her and said, also there's these motherfuckers. <laughs> and they're like, great, you can take care of us. Amazing. Uh, and then she she essentially tries to kind of start to civilise the brothers. Uh, mm. And then they they go back down into town looking looking for wives. Uh, and there's... On the hunt there's, for the wives. Uh, there's they meet some girls in the town and there's some flirtation and stuff like that but they they get kicked out of town because they're too rough rough and ready and so uh adam the 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 the, the oldest brother the one who's got married already tells them this story which is as matt said taken from this plutarch story of the of the sabine women which he reads as sobbing women of like well the romans they just rode into town and then they kidnapped the women and by the time the town like caught up with the Romans, the women were all like, eh, it's fine. We've got husbands now. We'll be fine. And so he gets his brothers all up, riled up, and they go into town and they kidnap them some wives and take them back to the <laughs> ranch. And then they trigger an avalanche so the town can't follow after them. And so the women are trapped with them for like throughout the winter, basically. Uh, but um, Millie, the, the his wife, basically won't let them won't let the brothers hang out and they the brothers get kind of banished out into the woods and have to go camp throughout the winter but eventually they the, the time passes and the the two groups start to kind of like come together flirting happens and eventually when the town does actually come and make their way into town well I wouldn't you know but all the brothers have hooked up with all of their respective partners and uh and they all get married and it's seven brides for seven brothers stockholm syndrome yeah so it's not the best in terms of gender politics. Yeah. <laughs> However, boy, do the song slap. <laughs> <laughs> and the the kind of the big showcase number in the middle of the, 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 
the uh, the film, uh, which is when the brothers go into town to a barn raising and a dance. And there is this astonishing dance number where it is the um, the women that they've they've met already have suitors, basically. And there's this dance number where it is the brothers slowly kind of uh, the, the, the suitors and the women are dancing. this kind of quite traditional dance for the time. Um, and then the, the the brothers all kind of basically slowly like bust in and are like, oh, I'm going to take this little bit of the dance. And then it turns into this kind of competition between the brothers and the other suitors yeah. where they're doing stuff like backflips on planks of wood and jumping over axes as they like swing them under their legs and stuff course, like that. Yeah. As you do. As you do. Well, you know, they didn't have any TV, so. <laughs> Fair. What are you going to do? Yeah. Um, what else are you going to do? And then you have this barn raising sequence where the suitors are all trying to sabotage the brothers. Uh, and But the brothers have been told, no, you've got to behave. You're in civilized society. Uh, but they eventually, they they all, the suitors all attack Adam. And so the brothers go for revenge. Uh, and the entire barn that they've been working on falls down. And it's this amazing kind of old school Hollywood stunt sequence at the, mm. the same time. And it's... It's truly incredible. Like it has been called the dance, the dance number, the barn raising sequence has been called one of the most rousing dance numbers ever put on screen wow. um, by film critics, and it's truly, truly incredible. Um, like some of the the brothers, there's a mix of kind of people who were like professional singers and dancers. One of them notably was like a former baseball player yes. who yeah. is always at the back in the dances because he wasn't actually that good at dancing um but you've also got people like russ tamblin who plays the the youngest brother gideon who goes on to be riff in west side story um uh, right. you've got uh tommy rawl as frank who was like this incredible acrobatic dancer mm. um the brothers are all named after biblical characters of course and in alphabetical order. That's, yeah. So you have Adam, now. Benjamin, Caleb, Daniel, Ephraim, and then they got to F. And apparent, apparently, there's no F names in the Bible. So his real name is Frankincense. Yeah. Um, but everybody calls him Frank. Fucking um, it's it's very fifties. Yes. And wrong. There um, are some Fs in the Bible. Yes, there are some Fs in the Bible, but you know, with yeah. And God it's said, it's a good joke. Fuck, son. <laughs> some Fs and some Cs in the Bible. But yeah, it's it's. A very weird, very of its time film, but the songs and the dancing are so good that they can carry it through the terrible message of the film <laughs> um, and the other kind of ropey elements of, of you know, films at the time. Um, it still looks gorgeous. Like, if you can see a decent, like, copy of it, um, the brothers are all tend to be like dressed in a particular color so you can help tell them apart um and the 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 technicolor just lushness of the the, the film is is mm. really wonderful there's like scenes where it's kind of going from transitioning from the winter to the spring and it's just it, it it's magical it kind of feels like the wizard of oz type shit because the, mm. the colors are just leaping off the screen it, it is that proper 50s technicolor pop where color was new mm. and it's like it's it's almost too saturated it's too colorful it does it mm. feels almost not real but then uh stanley donnan who directed this film also directed uh let's see he did, like he did singing in the rain funny face uh bedazzled he's someone who knows what he's doing because mgm was at the height of their sort of music mm. musical power at this point they, they were one of the major studios for this kind of thing and so getting the director for singing in the rain it's understandable 
that you have that dynamic flow and movement and everything. I mean, like you mentioned the, the, the barn raising stuff. It's so much going on in, in a way that's going to sound like a strange comparison. It's like the fight scene in Avengers in 2012, where you got, I can't keep track of this. It's like, no, actually, this flows. This kind of makes sense. There's, everyone's got a part. There's something going on. It's tons of shit going on in the background, but it works, except it's all, you know, on a soundstage and it's like very much enclosed environment. But again, it kind of like Rocky Horror, you need to go into it. This is a 50s movie kind of mindset. You need to go in yeah. saying like, this is of its time, of its period. And I, again, I'm going to equally say, I don't like this movie. I appreciate everything it's done and and how it, it nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars and things. Fuck me, I don't like it because it's one of those things my parents would watch along with Oklahoma and as I say, Calamity Jane and mm. Sound of Music and all those sorts of things. It's very much of, of that era yeah. of, like you say, MGM musicals. Yeah, and and the director who had you know worked on on very similar mm. properties, but like I say, it's you know part of it's nostalgia with me because I grew up watching it. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but also I can I can watch it today and just be astounded at some of the just the like athleticism and the the quality of the choreography and the dancing. Yeah, just to quickly just come off that because that's a very interesting point. We talk about saying like um, La La Land, and everyone's like, wow. Jesus, Gosling and Stone are really good. It's like, no, no, they're not. <laughs> their singing and their dancing is actually just very good for them and it's fine and it's enjoyable. But if you're trying to elicit the golden age of Hollywood musicals, then this is shit. They would be laughed out of the building back then. And that's not me trying to be, take a pop at those guys or even that movie. I'm just saying that... Even though La La Land's a big pile of shit. Yeah, exactly. But when you, when you go for that kind of, we're replicating this specifically, it's like, the way that the 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 scene, the opening on the on the highway, with there's like you know there's always shadows on people's face because they you know Chazelle's shooting like a movie. It's like that would never happen in a classic Hollywood film. You would never have that kind of thing where they'd go, "Fuck, I can't see people's fucking faces," or mm. you know Stone and Gosling look mostly in time. No bugger that. You're all in time or you're not. And the same with the stunt like you mentioned about the leaping over the. I think it's a different scene where they're on those two planks of wood hopping over axes and shit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you the wood isn't just a wooden plank. It is wobbly. It is like sort of like, you yeah. know, supple wood. And as they jump on it, it goes boom. And it looks and it looks it's real. It's in camera. It looks dangerous. And yet they're <laughs> hitting the beat every time. It's 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 an impressive piece of choreographed stunt work in a weird way. Mm. Yeah. Um and for that, I think it's, yeah, spectacular at times. But for yeah. me personally, fuck that noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd al I'd almost say to people kind of like... Watch the clips on YouTube. Don't yeah, watch 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 the barn dance and the barn raising on YouTube. And if, if, you're, if your curiosity is truly peaked, then go back and watch, watch the whole film. But I think they're worth seeing just for the quality in and of themselves. Mm. But also you've kind of then seen the best bits of the film. You don't necessarily, you know, even though I really like the songs, mm. um, mm. I think they're, the, the songs typically are kind of of a level with the other songs of, you know, your Oklahomas, your Hello Dollies, your Annie Get Your Guns kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, 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 would, I would say as much as I would agree with you, Tim, fuck it. Give it, if you've got a, a, a short while, give it a chance. Watch just in case. It's probably free on YouTube. Because you never know, you might go, actually, from start to end, I actually really enjoyed that. And I would never deny someone the experience of a movie. So, yeah, give it a go yeah. if you're interested. Just don't take it as any it, kind of dating advice. No, fuck no. So, Matt, we come around to you. Uh, presumably, you're going with a big, traditional Hollywood <laughs> musical to finish. 
I am going, it's me, of course I am. I'm going for like one of the most iconic, well-known, most beloved, outstanding pieces of musical cinema. I am, of course, talking about the 1993, technically, and also 1996, technically, kind of, maybe. It's a bit of a weird one. What? Yeah, it's it, the release schedule is a bit of a weird one, depending on who got the rights at different times. Cannibal the Musical, directed by Trey Parker. Pause for effect. So, um, why did I pick this movie? Good question. Excellent fucking choice. Right. So basically, Cannibal the Musical, also originally known as Alfred Packer the Musical, mm. is a 1993 movie, basically filmed by, by a bunch of students, um, or just outside of... Uh, Trey, of that Trey Parker is one of the South Park guys, by the yes, way. Trey Parker written, and Matt Stone. Yes, written by Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who created South Park shortly after this. Uh, they performed this thing. They got they raised like a hundred thousand dollars or something like that to make this from like friends and family. Made this movie. It got eventually picked up by Troma of all people, who are very much a schlocky, interesting studio. And from there, they were doing like the their 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 um sort of paper animation for like I think it's Jesus versus Santa, which then went on to become South Park. And when South Park hit, they fucking exploded off. And I highlight this movie for a reason. If you're talking about musicals specifically, what and they've done are. here is they've taken we are they've taken the Oklahoma style structure and things. So everything's colorful, silly, guys in big hats in you know the middle of nowhere <laughs> in fucking Denver, and they are just singing really stupid songs. Now at the time, this isn't a good thing. I'm not praising this either. At the time, Trey Parker was writing the idea of this thing because he was obsessed with Alfred Packer, who was a supposed cannibal, real life individual who was uh, tried for cannibalism. And they I want to write a musical about it. It'd be hilarious. In the way that, you know, late teens, early 20s people think that's funny to do that sort of shit. And in the process of that, he broke up with his girlfriend, Leanne, or she broke up with him. And he decided in a sort of fit of childishness to write half of the story about his unfaithful horse who leaves him for someone else. And he actively sings straight, like, and he calls the horse Leanne. It's the most fucking childish thing you can do, but it's kind of hilarious. So to clarify again, this movie was cheap. It looks real fucking cheap. It looks dirt cheap. Like you filmed the it. on Budget a tape was cheap. like a hundred thousand yep, dollars or something yep. like that. It yeah. is. It is. It is a nonsense in in how it was how it's made. But it is very fun in how stupid it is. And the best way to watch this, strangely enough, is to watch the commentary on the DVD because they, on the commentary got a lot of the cast and they get drunk. They start with like being sober and saying, like, yeah, okay, I'll tell you the story of how this worked out and things. And by the end of the thing, they are so drunk, like multiple bottles of whiskey or whatever it is each, that they're um, just screaming like, I don't know, she fucking married some guy who like did this, he was a stage and I'm worth $2 million. Who, who fucked up now? They also accident, well, not actually, they give out one of the cast, Dion Bakker, they give out his phone number, but it's bleeped. He's <laughs> um, like, what? What are you doing? That kind of thing. It's literally ridiculous. But the story itself is to say that this guy who's um, Alfred Packer goes on the trail in 1883, also a sort of similar covered wagon kind of thing to Tim's uh, Seven Brides, Seven Brothers kind of situation. And up in the mountains, resorts to cannibalism. And then he's tried. And it's like, well, no, that's not how it happened. And he talks about what the reality of the story was and how they all kind of went crazy. And it was kind of about the Donner Party sort of things in California. Lots of stuff going on, effectively. But it's also got things like the Native Americans are played by literal Japanese foreign exchange students because it's like that's an entire you know group of people that'll do 
it's really stupid. And there's a reason I'm highlighting it. First of all, I think the songs are funny. Uh, the Trapper song is fucking great. It's a Spadoinkel. Spadoinkel Day is great. Just Spadoinkel, as it's called, um, is so stupid. I think it's got a lot going for it. And Let's Build a Snowman is brilliant. Yeah, the one from Frozen, right? <laughs> yes. We can name him Let's Tom. We can name snowman. him Beowulf. Um, it's, no, it's better than that one. Um, but there is a quote. There's a whole thing at the end of the Trapper song, which goes about how they're like, you know, I'm a trapping man. I'm a trapper. I go out and I cut their eyes out and I kill them dead. And that's what I do all the time. And they go, oh, stop, stop. That's sick. He goes, I agree. Not I was singing in the wrong key. He goes, no, it's Lautenheimer. He was singing an F flat main minor. <laughs> it's like, no, the song's an F sharp major. It's like, I think the same thing. I mean, E flat is the relative major of F sharp. It's like, no, it isn't. The relative minor is three half tones down from the major, not up. It's like, no, it's three down. Like A is the relative minor of C major. It's like, but isn't A sharp in C minor? Sorry, sorry, C major? It's like, wait, are you singing Mixolydian scales or something? A sharp is tonic to C major. It's the sixes. No, it isn't. Well, it would be if it was a raised 13th. They actually have an actual conversation uh, you know about the nature of like musical structure and it's so stupid and yet hilariously immature and funny that i'm like this is great and the reason i'm highlighting it isn't because i should say go watch it if you want to it's if you're curious it's it's quite funny in places it's very silly it looks piss poor the singing is terrible the songs are stupid but it's funny in places it's the start of something and because they know what they're talking about this is what intrigues me because if you'd said to those stupid kids who are making this dumb film for, you know, a very, very limited budget up in the mountains with some people that could rope in because it kind of worked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Boys, just so you know, you're going to go off and do South Park. It's like, oh, what's that? Is that going to be good? It's going to be one of the biggest things for a long period of time. It's like, oh, cool. What after that? Well, that South Park thing is going to get you an Oscar nomination. It's going to what? And then you're going to do a, a, an actual musical for the theatre. Cool. Yeah, it's going to win on nine or ten Tonys and become the 12th highest or most winning Tony thing ever in terms <laughs> of like, you know, theatre productions. So it's taking the, the logic, the understanding and the sort of the, 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 the sea, the nebulous of just like this idea that they know what they're doing. They just don't have the resources and then germinating it over the years to create this huge, same stupid humour in Book of Mormon, same stupid humour in South Park, but executing it much much more efficiently and for that reason i find it a genuinely fascinating relic yeah i i very nearly went for for south park bigger longer and uncut which i think is because, magnificent as well by the way yeah because as much as i don't like south park like i don't like what it's become i think neither it do i pro should probably have finished after about season four or five i think it's getting 14 um, movies now yeah that that film and the the songs in it are genuinely great Agreed. like I my introduction to Les Mis was kind of La Resistance, which is the 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 one day more piss take yes. in South Park the movie. The the models um, of Blame Canada and other bits and pieces all going together. The, yeah, yeah, bringing bringing all the songs together to yeah. for the for the, the midpoint. Medley, yeah. yeah, yeah, and 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 I think they genuinely do have a talent as songwriters for both parody and for homage, where it's there's more affection going on than than just trying to kind of poke fun at something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I completely understand picking this one as your as your pick. It's an odd outlier. It. It's a weird one. Yeah. So, and it's 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 I'd say it's a tricky one to watch because it's like watching someone's home video sort of thing. Was this before or after they did uh, what is it, Orgasmo? 
Oh no, Orgasmo is ninety-eight. Yeah, this is much long before that. Orgasmo has a budget by. I I think Orgasmo is funny as well, because um, I watched it when I was like fifteen. Stupid film, but funny. Um, but no, Cannibal Music was. Um, yeah, it's it's a really weird one. I, it's it's such a strange relic. It's 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 odd that it exists, and it's odd that it's available. And of all the trauma sort of properties, shall we say, if that's the right word, what's the toxic waste avenger? Toxie, the toxic waste avenger. He's like the big sort of superhero kind of uh, figurehead of trauma. But then also, to be fair, trauma is where James Gunn got his start as well. Yeah, I was going to say trauma is where yep. James Gunn yeah. comes from. It's if those who don't know, it's a very, it's very so it's a very very um, schlocky studio, but giving you know irreverent dickhead dudes a start which again was very 90s and, and not necessarily a good environment probably but yeah cannibal musical i think i think it's got a lot of genuine heart in what it's trying to do it's stupid and malicious at times it's very boring and badly placed. it's almost that's why the commentary is quite funny because you watch it with these people and they're watching it like they're watching their own like school projects and god this is so shit this <laughs> crepe fucking beards what is this Oh, hello, hello. That's my dad, by the way. That's my dad there. He's playing the judge. There we go. That kind of stuff. It's so, it's so stupid. It feels like you're kind of having a good time with it. It's a, it's a very dumb film, but as I say, very interesting. I didn't even know it existed before you brought it up. So, oh, that's, I'm, I'm so far out of the South Park loop. I have seen, I think I've seen some of the film 20 years ago. I might have seen an episode or two here or there. Thought nothing of it. Didn't think of it since. Interesting. It's just kept going for the last 20 years, like parallel to my life. And I've just got blinkers <laughs> on not paying attention. Mm. And then I saw Book of Mormon like six, seven years ago in London. And it was fucking brilliant. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Maybe I'll give this South Park thing a go. Tried to watch some South Park. Didn't give a shit about it. Didn't get half the jokes for whatever reason. I was just like, mm. this is, turns out this is not for me. And yeah, had no idea this film existed until you put it in the show notes a couple of days ago. And I was like, huh, I'll look this up. This is weird. And then, yeah, found out how low budget and weird it is. And, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I'm fully expecting uh, an absolute tirade of fury saying, let me get this straight. So you've got a problem with this 1950s classic musical. You've got a problem with Rocky Horror Picture Show, but you're fine with Cannibal the Musical. And the answer is, <laughs> yes. A go fuck yourself. That's, that's the South Park way, right? That's... Probably. well on that note on that go fuck yourself note thank you much for listening everybody this wraps up the show you can follow us on all the social media we are sequelizers on everything including twitter instagram facebook you can go to sequelizers.com there's the link to our patreon link to our discord link to our shop and all the podcast platforms all in one lovely little space you can follow me on twitter and instagram i am jlw chambers matt how can people follow you on social media? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. You can go to the redrighthand.co.uk and read my reviews. You can go to cheeseman.com and see the things that I make. Tim, if I want to uh if I want to pre-order tickets to see Tim the musical, where can I uh where can I go to get those? Uh you can find those exclusively on Twitter, trivia underscore lad, where I will be performing my one person show with absolutely terrible songs. Tim also performs a one man show on OnlyFans, but that's different. <laughs> yep that's where you can find me well thank you very much for listening everybody we'll be back next week and i know i say this every time with the interseason episodes but it is definitely something very different next week and as i said we're hurtling towards season nine it's going to be here sooner than you think already more than halfway through this interseason break 
And you better believe we're kicking off season nine in style. So get hyped for that. Get hyped for next week's episode and the rest of the end of season. But until then, see you next week. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. There it is.